I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that felt obliged to cover the movie that threatened to never come out and then somehow became the first major release of the pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Cunningham, and joining me are... James Hunts and Michael Leader. We will be discussing Josh Boone's 2020 movie, The New Mutants. James was adamant that I had to include the definite <laughs> article in front of that. It's not New Mutants. It's that is the, the name of the film. The it's New like Mutants. The, it's like the Batman and the yeah. Suicide Squad and the Aquaman. And don't yeah, and don't <laughs> you forget it. <laughs> um, but before any of that, Mike, thanks for joining us again. I think you were you were last with us on our end of year special. Mm-hmm. Our um, well, our awards to end all awards until until <laughs> we do some more next year. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to join you guys and to uh, yeah talk about a film that I thought didn't exist until I actually sat down to watch it, and <laughs> I still kind of think did it really exist? <laughs> Listen, as as we've discussed off mic, there are mutants, <laughs> and they're new. You can't deny either of that. The movie asks us, what if there were new mutants? And answers, <laughs> and answers the th- question. this is what would happen. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to talking about it because I watched um, I watched it in... In fact, James, both of us watched it in cinemas, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. I saw it in a cinema alone. I was and the I only th- person in the entire screen. And I think it did, we, we've been talking about when's the right, right time to do this episode. And I think now that it is available and like... Because no one was going to pay fifteen quid to watch this at home. <laughs> in in reality, like, but it, but like, it's it's an interesting curio. In in years to come, I think it's going to be like, oh, huh, remember that movie that came out that ended the Fox <laughs> X Men franchise? Yeah, I was looking forward as well to watching an X Men movie that hadn't been cancelled. Um, un- unfortunately, this movie has um, prominent references to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and features the voice of Marilyn Manson. So yeah. um, we maybe should have gone a month earlier with this. <laughs> I mean, it's not without its own problems as well, but we'll get to that. Yes, we will get to that. Mike, um, We uh, it's the first time that we've had you on the podcast um, since we lost Seb. And mm. we've, we've talked about... We've talked about several a lot of our guests, and I, and I promise to our listeners that we're not we're not going to start off every single podcast that we ever do on on like a depressing but but also you know it's 
I don't, it's, it's nice it's nice to have these conversations especially um you know when we've got a guest on who was friends with Seb and mm. uh all of us are on a chat thread we were on a chat thread with Seb and it's weird right I don't, I don't know it's still it's still I, I mean I think it's six six months now right and it doesn't it doesn't feel that that length of time feels absurd to me it's coming up to seven months isn't it just about recording at the end of february um it feels yeah the time feels absurd because of because of we're still in this situation with the pandemic and lockdown so we've not yeah. even been able to really kind of go out into the world and get get th- get things back to normal it's bizarre and yeah as you said we have this chat thread going which i call my geek dads um which is a thread that's been incredibly important to me for the last you know two and a half years since um since my toddler was born um because i look looked up to seb and james and al as sort of more veteran dads to look to for advice it's kind of you to say that if nothing no, else, we had done it slightly earlier. So, <laughs> um, and now you've come along, Joe, and also joined in. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like with uh, kind of like with comic book movies. You just had to get involved and see what all the fuss was about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and you know, the thread asks, "What if there were dads and they were geeks?" And <laughs> and I think we have we've also answered that question. Yeah, and, and I think many of the conversations you've had on the podcast and elsewhere about Seb, you know, I'd, I'd only be adding the same thing to that about how it was after he passed and realising just how prolific he was and how many people came out of the woodwork with, like, various aspects of his passions and hobbies that I didn't even realise had touched people. It was so mm. kind of moving because he was so such a huge figure in the sort of comic book nerd side of my life and the podcast side of my life, um, I, you know, I will always treasure the trip to the cinema to Leicester Square to see um, Man of Steel, the the, the, the infamous, uh, the infamous yeah. one where um, I, I think I was the editor who'd uh, commissioned him to write a review of that film, and knowing that he'd missed the final five minutes. And actually, that that probably probably slightly preceded my arrival at Film Four, at which Seb was never never slow to remind me was what stopped him <laughs> reviewing comic book movies at film four. <laughs> yeah and um you know i i take you know it was, it was quite a big moment of pride for me uh when when we launched the inside cinema strand the series that i work on for the bbc and i one of the first episodes was about gotham city and the batman movies mm. that um one of the opinions that I was worried most about hearing was Seb's, because I know he's, you know, so, you know, he was such a massive kind of Batman nerd, particularly of that era post nineteen eighty nine in the comics. Mm. And I managed to refer to a, a, an obscure little three issue run that even he hadn't read and didn't really know about. So that was like, <laughs> yes, I impressed Seb with some Batman trivia. Nice. <laughs> See, I I feel like I was constantly on the podcast with with Seb. My when I, there were certain opinions that I would share, I would share and would be kind of desperate that Seb and James would be like, "Oh yeah, no, you've 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 got this." <laughs> I mean, especially when it came to comics, and I kind of came back with this was my take on the thing that you recommended me, and they were like, "Yes," and I I'd, I'd feel, I you, you know, like I had my as as you alluded to my my uh, my podcast proud dads. But also there'd be some opinions that I'd come to the podcast with and I'd be like, I really hope, I really hope Seb disagrees with this because we're going to have, 
We're going to have so much fun if he does. <laughs> it's when I was so disappointed. I was genuinely so disappointed to um, to not like Joker. Because I thought, oh, you know, that's just going to be a Barney of an episode otherwise. But it, it, what it ended up being was just this um, this miserable loving in a very different way. <laughs> yeah. Uh... I was uh, I was reminded of um, Seb this last month uh, when Groundhog Day came around, mm-hmm. and um, you know we've talked we've talked so many times about Seb being uh, like the most passionate person when it comes to something <laughs> that that he enjoyed. You were like you would know that he enjoyed it, and Groundhog Day, I like I knew that was one of his movies. He thought it was perfect. He watched it every year. Um, and so when it was Groundhog Day, I watched the movie. Um, I, I was having like a, a feeling particularly shitty lockdown kind of blues that day, that week. And um, kind of thought, well, I'm going to watch this movie. I'm going to think about my friend and went on Twitter and thought, I wonder what the I wonder what the last thing said tweeted about this was. And what I actually got was 20 minutes worth of tweets to scroll through. You know, just over the past decade, that like the amount yeah. of times that he that that if you put in at Sir Patrick Groundhog Day, um, it was it was mind blowing, and I was like, oh, I know what Seb thinks about every single scene, um, and that was <laughs> and, and like that was like a great special feature at the end of the movie that night. Well, it's something that we say time and again, almost on a daily basis, about how things come along and you just want to know what he made of it. And it was actually around Groundhog Day when the new Weezer album came out, mm. um, and it was all—he'd it be the only person I cared about, you know, when it came to the new Weezer album because yeah. he really cared. Yeah. Uh, even if it was bad, he'd still do a track by track sort of breakdown. And the thing is, this new Weezer album, OK Human, which is a terrible, terrible <laughs> album title. I've not heard the title before. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, it's actually a really good Weezer album, and actually trying something different. It's a completely almost almost acoustic album with like a strings and orchestra kind of thrown in, mostly piano based too. Huh. And because it's such a break from what we expected from Weezer for the last few years, when they've gone more and more ironic and power pop metal, and I was just thinking, I really wish you know I could have hit heard what he made of that. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, I, I get that. I'm every, I mean, every new thing we're covering on the podcast, certainly mm. One Division. I don't know. One Division's the thing for me. Like, I just, he was looking forward to it so much. Yeah. And I just keep thinking, like, ah, I would have loved it. He would have had so much to, yeah. to enjoy about it. And yeah, it's just, I'm very sad he's missing it. Oh, it's it's always difficult to transition out of this uh, section of the podcast, but I yeah, I, do, I, do, I genuinely do. I think it's you know it's so nice to be able to to um, yeah to remember Seb like this, and and it's you know it's it's nice to it's it's nice to have those little just even those four experiments of what would Seb have thought about this. Um, yeah, I, I, I honestly believe, it, like New Mutants, he wouldn't have given a shit about, and wouldn't, have cared, <laughs> wouldn't have cared about whether he was on this episode or not. Probably would have maintained that it still hadn't come out. <laughs> we could have told him Gambit was in it. Yeah, <laughs> um, That's it. So... crunch those gears, crunch them. um what we've been doing recently on the podcast is um talking about what we've been watching recently um Mm -hmm. but not just what we've been watching what we've been reading what we've been 
I guess it mostly is what we've been watching, but you know, a bit <laughs> a bit of everything. So, um, Mike, as our guest, uh, what have you been watching recently? So, watch. I mean, One Division. I've been watching. And, yeah, and I'm not a TV kind of. I'm not built for TV, really. The, the sort of week to week speculation hype train. Thing. so it's been this, really great this particular type of tv is that exactly and i've been enjoying it but listening to you guys talk every week we kind of have a routine now where we kind of have our chat on you know on our kind of group thread mm-hmm. on a friday afternoon whenever we watch it but then it's the following week where i can catch up with you two actually talking about it on the podcast <laughs> where i get to know what your real deep thoughts are that's been really atonic <laughs> but in more sort of kind of familiar territory for me i've been watching um the films of the irish animation studio cartoon saloon recently um they are sort of in a very superficial way referred to as the irish studio ghibli because they have sort of ecological themes they mix sort of myth and reality and they just make really good animated films that have wisdom um behind them like song of the sea which is one I watched the other day, which I, has grown in my kind of estimations over the years. It's like now one of my favourite films of the last 20 years, I'd say. Um, but if I'm allowed to broaden out from watching to reading, if that's not we, moving I, too quickly. I, just before, before we move on, Mike, I think mm-hmm. we should ask, why have you particularly been watching, re-watching those <laughs> movies right now? Oh, do you want, you want, you want me to plug? Okay. I want you to plug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's because um, we're doing a mini-series for the podcast I do called Ghibli Attack, which was um, about Studio Ghibli. And we thought, there are like 20-odd Studio Ghibli films. We'll do a film an episode, and that'll keep us busy for a good long time. And then we got to the end of those films, and then we had to figure out what to do next. <laughs> and find... It's kind of hard... I know, Joe, you're not much of an anime fan. James, you're a bit more of one, so you'll understand this. That like once you move outside of Studio Ghibli and you get filmmakers who maybe have made a couple of films that are worthwhile and then maybe a TV series that's like hundreds of episodes long. And yeah. It's kind of and hard. Also impossible to find. Yeah, really hard to get your head around um, how to broaden out within anime for that. We did a miniseries about Satoshi Kon, who is basically yeah. a guy who only really worked in like mostly in features and then one sort of short contained anime series paranoia agent and all his films were good and so we've been looking for ways of having other mini series where we can talk about sort of contained filmographies that have a unified vision but also a, a consistent level of quality behind them and that's what cartoon saloon is mm-hmm. um and it's been really fun rewatching them. They only made they've only made four films to date. Most recently, Wolf Walkers, which came out last year. And what's great is that every film is like they're working on a slightly bigger canvas, so you can really feel that growth. Um, so that's that's why I've been rewatching them. If, if, yeah. if I'm if I'm allowed to make a quick plug, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and so you and you're also reading so reading yes so i actually have been reading comics recently off the back of um what are they exactly <laughs> um off the back of a really strong recommendation um from you know people within this podcast and people on friends of you know, and friends of the podcast i've recently read the first five volumes of chip Starsky's daredevil run um so i'm almost fully up to date on that and i'm really i'm saying chips diarski's daredevil run uh erasing the artists because they sort of hop around artists between issues 
Um, James, or am I really kind of sleeping uh, on... No, I mean, it, it's tough, isn't it, to associate individual artists with a, with a run that long. I think at the moment it's Marco Cicciato, is it? Yeah, I think it, it, yeah. It definitely Volume 5 was, was Marco Cicciato. Uh, but um, yeah, so, and that's just fantastic. I think, James, we talked about it and saying how it yeah. is already up there with one of the great Daredevil runs. And Daredevil is one of the heroes who may not be top tier a grade like you know, he's he's maybe not a spider-man not commercially no, I mean, speaking i mean they let speaking. they let netflix do it so that's that says yeah. enough doesn't it but he's so if you were a newcomer to comics you wouldn't necessarily go straight to the daredevil shelf whereas actually you probably should because you can <laughs> yeah, easily yeah. pinpoint four or five distinct runs by distinct creative teams who put a stamp on not only the character but also the amazing cast yeah. of characters around when him. When we when we first started the podcast, we did uh, was Daredevil our first episode, James? I believe it was our very first episode. Yeah, and 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 uh, may, maybe part of this was me getting shown comics outside, like you know that I've, I'm sure I said this millions of times on the podcast, but like I'd read like a couple of obvious things, like I'd read Watchmen and I'd read a bit of Spider Man <laughs> and I'd read some kind of big crossovers at certain points, but not not like a not a huge amount of stuff. Um, and I think you gave me, um, it would have been man without fear would have been one of them. Um, and you gave me the Kevin Smith, the Kevin Smith guardian devil. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and off the back of that, I went and read, um, I went and read loads more daredevil and then got some more recommendations when the TV show came out. And, mm-hmm. um, I love that character. I love that. I love that world. And also I think you were saying this when you were talking about it. Mike, but like it's such a, you wouldn't think the character w- is as flexible as mm-hmm. he proves to be. Um, yeah, I, 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 you talking about the Zadarsky run is like inching me towards getting re <laughs> upping my Marvel Unlimited subscription and, um, and diving back into Daredevil because I read a lot of it, but I didn't get all the way through. And I think like I still haven't read most of the, um, now, if you get, did read a lot of the Brubaker stuff, who comes after Brubaker? Uh, it's Andy Diggle that comes after Brubaker. It goes Bendi- Bendis, Brubaker, Andy Diggle, Mark Wade. I read all of the Bendis stuff, started on Brubaker, but didn't didn't get far enough in. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um... I mean, the, the Brubaker-Diggle stuff gets bogged down a bit in crossovers, but then Mark Wade comes on, he does a completely different... Um different version of the character where he moves him to San Francisco and it's sort of light-hearted and swashbuckling and really interesting for that um it's not my preferred version of daredevil but it is really good in itself yeah i think i think the mark wade run came at quite an important time for me where i was reading comics much more regularly so i picked up and that picked that up and read it issue by issue mm-hmm. and it's just really interesting where the status quo that mark wade sets is daredevil's happy yeah <laughs> Um, and whereas Zdarsky, and this is so fa- amazing that we're talking about Chip Zdarsky, who if you go back like, what, 10 years, he was like, even just his name was a joke. Uh-huh. He was like a local Toronto kind of gag strip guy, yeah. writing funny articles from the free press and <laughs> was a meme in his own right in that sort of community. Well, when we started doing this podcast, he was, um, like, I was surprised when people kept saying, oh, like, oh, this Chip Zdarsky comic's quite good. Because I think I think when I kind of dropped off comics, I'd enjoyed his Howard the Duck stuff and um, knew that he was the artist on Sex Criminals, I think. 
And then he, I, I'd read a couple of episodes of his Star Lord and was just like, oh, so he's the guy that you throw at goofy characters to do something silly mm-hmm. and fun. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's going to work and stuff like it did. I thought mostly with Howard the Duck and did <laughs> not much with Star Lord. Yeah. Yeah. But but then he did some really great Spider-Man comics. Uh, and yeah. Then, and now, actually, what's what's really interesting about Daredevil is that he really takes the whole Catholic angle quite seriously, and the criminal underworld around it, the world building, mm-hmm. and does does some really interesting stuff with a splintering of perspective. So even though it's definitely a Daredevil story, you do have these sort of extra secondary protagonists that are being followed as well. One being Kingpin, who's move to a new level because he is the mayor of New York and having to sort of find himself playing a new role within the world and finding new antagonists when he used to be the kingpin of New York. Uh, Some really fantastic fantastic stuff in there, I think. The thing I like about Starsky's Daredevil is that it it covers similar angles to like the sort of classic Frank Miller and Bendis runs, but it doesn't feel like, uh, like it's aping them in terms of style. Like it's got a really... Almost like Sopranos esque focus on the the politics and crime of Daredevil's situation, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just doing that sort of remix that you can get occasionally with Daredevil writers, where they're just like, "Hey, we're doing people figure out Daredevil's identity again, and we're doing you know Daredevil's uh, falling to bits psychologically again." And you know, it's it's bringing in some of the classic characters, but I feel like it's got new angles for them. And from yeah. the from the outside, I'm I'm not reading any Marvel comics currently, but from the outside it seems to me like Daredevil's one of the few kind of like banner Marvel heroes who has a, like a, a a particularly notable run right now. Like it's not mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not I'm not hearing that current Captain America or Iron Man or Fantastic Four or whoever, you know, or Spider Man, you know, any of these are having like great like noteworthy runs at the moment. I don't know whether that's just what I'm what I'm hearing, but Daredevil and maybe Hulk are the ones that I'm hearing are in are in that mode. X Men too, but yes, yes, I guess yeah. Yeah, I think those but, are the big three. Certainly, they're the ones people are talking about. Whereas X Men, I think it's not like it's not like there is a there <laughs> is a there is a run that is going on. It's more like this is a. This is a huge saga that is unfolding over yeah. mul- multiple comics and will continue to a lot of for stuff. years. <laughs> <laughs> James James says that with a look on his face that is like, it's great, but also I'm drowning. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> James, what have you been um consuming this week? Um so TV wise, I've been I've been watching WandaVision and I've just for the rest of it I've been Going back to old episodes of The Simpsons, which are just because <laughs> they're on Disney Plus, it's really easy to revisit them. However, there are two two things I want to mention quickly. One is Riverdale. I don't know how up to date you guys are with Riverdale, but <laughs> no, James, <laughs> you're, you're missing. You're missing out. You're missing out. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I couldn't. So in <laughs> in Riverdale, the cast have just graduated high school. And there has been a seven year t- a seven year time jump. <laughs> I saw that. I did see the trailer for this season, and I saw that, and I was like, what "The fuck is going on?" <laughs> seven years. The thing I like about it is that they've gone from being too old to play young to being too young too to play young old. To play, yes, brilliant. <laughs> so, brilliant. like, Veronica's having trouble with her marriage, and it's like you're twenty five. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're twenty five years old. And Archie went to war, and he's right. come back can all traumatized. Can you explain something? 
I watched the trailer and it looked like Archie had gone to war on a high school football field. Yeah, because they they didn't have the money to stage a war for Riverdale. Yeah. So what they did is they have him have flashbacks where he is on a football field and that is his like memory experience of the war. That's dumb. They they could have done it. <laughs> they could have done a bit of war. Cobra Kai, which was making the first couple of seasons on a YouTube budget, had, <laughs> had Vietnam scenes. The thing I like about Come that on, war Riverdale. is that it's very vague. He's just like, he's gone to war and he's apparently gone to World War Two, But <laughs> I, I don't know where. Um, and Jughead is a failing writer. And Betty yeah. is in the FBI and she got traumatized by a serial killer. And it's great. It's so good. Oh wait, so she's she's Clarice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. it's really sounds, good. Sounds it's terrible. <laughs> it's nuts. Uh, Riverdale has fallen into disrepair as well. It's lost its soul, and they're going to get it back for it. Have they ever crossed over with Sabrina? Or have they kept all of that? No, they were going to for Sabrina series five, and then Netflix canned it after series four. So, oh, they cancelled Sabrina. Yeah, yeah. Oh, R.I.P. Sabrina. Regrettable. I'm so sorry. <laughs> They yeah. got through four seasons fast, though. Yeah, it did. It was good. Um, and yeah, so the other thing, aside from Riverdale, is I am reading um, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, which is mm. Abraham Reisman's biography of Stan Lee. It's one of those biographies with a thesis, and it's not a thesis I necessarily agree with so far. What What is that thesis? The thesis is, like, Stan Lee was a bad man who oh. lied a lot, which, it, like, I feel like... It's a controversial take to to give on someone so beloved, and that's sort of why why I sought it out because I was like, I feel like from for my own interests, I want to read the sort of balanced side of Stanley. Like an authorized biography of Stanley is going to miss out a lot of the a lot of the things he did that were not great. But I feel like this mm. one's gone a bit the other way in terms of just mm. trying to. It's a bit of a hit job. I don't know. I'm only halfway through it. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a more solid critique when I'm finished, maybe. Mm-hmm. He feels like someone who will get the Hollywood treatment eventually, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so, eventually. Um, the thing about this book is that it, it tries to be like, oh, you know, he was a pathological liar, and then it would turn up like him exaggerating the results of an essay competition when he was seven. Yeah. And you're like, oh, is this, is this the best you've got? So, so, so if, are you up to, where are you up to now? Uh, I mean, I'm still partway through the 60s now, so... So so when it says he's a pathological liar and he's a bad man, is it, is it just sort of the extent of it being he took the credit for, you know, he? it was really Ditko, it was really Kirby, it was, and he... Yeah, like, it's, or... it's nothing that's going to shock anyone yeah. who's been in comics. But then also, I don't know, I feel like even that's exaggerated to an extent, because, like, like, do you remember that documentary that um, Jonathan Ross did about Steve mm-hmm. Ditko? And he gets Stanley in that, and he really pins him down and, like you know, says, what What do you think? And Stan Lee kind of cracks for the, for a moment. And he says, like, you know, I, I came up with the idea for Spider-Man and I just told Steve to draw it or told Jack Kirby to draw a vision. Like, as far as he's concerned, mm-hmm. he genuinely believes it was his idea and he just got someone to illustrate it. So, you know, it's I don't think that's an indefensible position. I think maybe in terms of the comics, fair enough. But So I wonder in, like, 300 years' time and, you know, whatever we do in, that, in terms of visual media by that point, we'll have the equivalent of, like, Shakespeare truthers making films like Anonymous, <laughs> where it's this the shadowy figure is actually Kirby or is it Lee Stanley? And yeah, I mean, I that, think that's the dramatization of it. I think no one would disagree that Stanley sort of took a lot of the credit for those characters. What I disagree with is that 
him taking his credit sort of invalidates anyone else's contributions. Because, like, everyone knows that Jack Kirby did that stuff if they look into it. It's just that Stanley was alive and around to talk about himself. Like, I, I feel like it's a nuanced, a nuanced thing. And this book is taking an extreme position just to sort of promote itself. So mm. it's an interesting read. You know, I always find it interesting to read a book that I disagree with on some level. That's why it sounds like that's why you sorted it out in the first place. That you oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was. So I've dug out this box of DVDs and I've been reading through old <laughs> episodes of Malcolm in the Middle and the Dick Van Dyke Show. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't. I, um, I, I can't follow the theme and be talking about anything comics relevant. I have been listening to, I've been trying to get out of the house more on the evenings and go for some walks because otherwise I think I'm going to lose my mind. Um, so <laughs> I have been listening to, on my long walks, um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which is kind oh. of like a, a okay. you know, it's one of, I think it's like one of the canonical film books. Um, kind of tells the story of the birth of New Hollywood in the late 60s through the 1970s. Um, and... I don't know, fa- fascinating to me uh, just to, to really step back and think about it for a second. The, the the book starts off by going, you know, there's this guy who made this film and that film and that film and this guy made that film and this guy made that film and that guy. And you're like, so many white dudes got <laughs> all of the all of the opportunities. And like the only kind of the only non-white guy who plays a prominent part early on anyway is Pauline Kale. Because it brings about this like revolution in critics as well, where basically like everyone who likes Bonnie and Clyde when it comes out becomes a critic that's still worth listening to, and mm. anyone who didn't isn't worth listening to. And Pauline Kale is like the early evangelist for it. Mm. Um, but it, it 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 did make me kind of um, reflect on. I wonder how we are going to view the like post Me Too era of cinema. Um, Post Me Too, post Oscars So White era of cinema that I think we're in at the moment, where we are we're seeing this explosion of opportunities for non-white directors, um, and I, and I wonder, yeah, I wonder what this this era is going to look like and what cinema looks like on the other side of it because I think it, you know there's some amazing amazing movies being made at the moment because we are seeing movies come from different viewpoints um from different life experiences um i also think there's some quite surface level movies being made where um movies are kind of getting a pass based on ticking uh, not necessarily a box of who made it but a box like that that checkbox of hey look we've we've got some feminism or hey look our cast isn't all white so you should cut you should cut us more slack than you would that other movie right um so i'm you know i'm kind of fascinated to see what happens on the other side of this um but what it did prompt me to do and i've been kind of wanting to do this for a while probably since i saw once upon a time in hollywood actually where i was like oh i really want to dig into not not even new hollywood but that like that pivot point where where you you go from dr doolittle and um guess who's coming to dinner and go into Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so yeah, this, this week I watched Bonnie and Clyde for the first time. I ah. pro- proactively sought that out on DVD already. So I had it, I had the Blu-ray sat in my cupboard and watched it and just absolutely fell head over heels on mm-hmm. the first viewing <laughs> of it. Like 
just from the first five minutes, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, Warren Beatty and Arthur Penn were fans of the French New Wave. I see that. I definitely, <laughs> I definitely see that. Um, but just this vibe that it has to it, and also, you know, just just like watching these beautiful people uh, just <laughs> tear their way around uh, around, you know, Prohibition era America, robbing banks and. Um, and just just doing it because it feels like they've got nothing else to do, and it just it's just like it's it's a thrill. Um, and um, I don't think I've watched much Warren Beatty actually, certainly not that area Warren Beatty. And I was just like, every time you smiled, I was like, oh my god, I can't take my eyes off this movie. And <laughs> Faye, Faye Dunaway's beret, it's just it's so slick and stylish, and. And funny, you've got a great like Gene Wilder segment in there, and he is a hoot. Um, Gene Hack has got all the genes. Gene Hackman's in there, so in one, of, one of the major sporting roles. And then being able to watch it, kind of the day after listening to this chapter of the book that's talking about what was so shocking about it at the time, and what repulsed critics of the of the old school and what repulsed Jack Warner and uh, and and how it got made in the first place. It just added that that whole extra level of intrigue for me. Um so Easy Rider is up next. That's 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 my next uh checkbox. And um yeah I'm looking forward to to diving through that book. That's gonna be a really fun ride for you. Not yeah. to, no, no pun intended, but um I read that book when because that was a book that was always like Empire Magazine's best film book of all time. Because uh, it's it's incredibly readable whilst also being you know quite robust film history. Uh, yeah. Peter Biskin, the author, is is sometimes kind of I think nowadays seen as a bit like old fashioned. Like he's 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 very he he very much kind of falls in love with his big theories and his reads of certain stars and directors' careers. And when once I don't know how far in you are, Joe, but I think by the end you'll really get the sense of like, oh, this was the story he was telling about this filmmaker and this filmmaker and his read on that filmmaker, this star. Um, I think his his read on George Lucas it has is like one of the most sort of insightful that I've ever I've ever read. Um, I've, so, I've the, just started getting some George Lucas. As as the guy who you know this sort of thing, like he he was the guy, he was the chosen one. He was supposed to bring balance to the force, uh, um, and the, the way that he's left at the end of Easy Riders Raising Bulls, the, the sort of which which sort of like the, the the wave of the book crashes in the sort of late eighties. Mm. Um, George Lucas in particular is, is really fascinating, but it's a, it is a, it's a really interesting generation, and it's we yeah. kind of forget about it now how. Um, it is a very exciting time and knowing mm. that all these filmmakers come out at the same time and they are, they may not be diverse in terms of, you know, their, their sort of ethnic makeup, but they yeah. do come from various backgrounds. Some are oh, film yeah, school absolutely. kids, some are just self-taught movie brats. Some have come out from the Roger Corman sort of B-movie industry. And kind of over the, you know, the, the 50 years that have followed have kind of had these very different impacts and legacies on the industry and you know it's it's also interesting to me looking at it and going like oh and who flamed out when and who's still mm. like who's still standing and like how how improbable actually is it that um that lucas isn't but scorsese is mm-hmm. you know it's weird and, and i know you know it's I'm, I'm not i'm not brand new to all the films this era i'd seen um 
I'd already seen The Graduate, so I don't I don't need to do that kind of earlier text again. Um, I've seen a lot of Scorsese. I did all of De Palma last year. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, so n- not all of it is new to me. Um, but actually, American Graffiti is a film that I still need to tick off, and I I saw got added to a streaming service after being unavail- unavailable for a, for a while last year. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be fun. Mix that in with my Sandler and my Hitchcock, which is still <laughs> ongoing. <laughs> All the Titans, all the greats. <laughs> we are getting towards the end of Sandler. Not sure how I'm going re- to fill that particular hole in my life. Hey, it was the it was the um, anniversary of Happy Gilmore uh, last week. I saw I he the... posted a posted a video of himself hitting a golf ball to celebrate it. Yes, and then the guy who um, who plays the rival golfer did his own video in response. It was all very Shooter cute McGavin, yeah. Shooter McGavin, yeah, who has his own Twitter account. Um, and it was it was so delightful. I'm still so pro. I like I'm still riding on the post uncut gems high that I'm still so pro Sandler, and I love his Twitter presence, um, which is enough to get me through rewatches of movies like Pixels and Men, Women, and Children. <laughs> which yeah. Ugh. So anyway, that's what I've been watching. Um, one thing that we've all been watching though, guys. This transitions. Six years in, he's still got it. Uh, one thing we've all been watching is the the new mutants. The new um, mutants. So let's take a quick listen to the trailer, and then we'll be back with our discussion of that long-awaited movie. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What's the last thing you remember, Danny? 
The reason you survived is because you're a very uncommon girl. You're not alone. Not anymore. Do you know what mutants are? Would anyone like to share their first time? Rain? I was 13. I thought it was a dream. I just lost control. Sam? I started panicking. People got hurt. Roberto? My girlfriend had burned hair. Liliana? I killed 18 men. One by one. This isn't a hospital. It's a cage. It's important we find out your power so we can help you get better. I saw something. I don't think she wanted me to see. I don't think we're here to get better. This place takes your greatest fear and makes you live through it. Until it kills you. He's there. We can get out of this together. So, The New Mutants is... A film that was released, contrary to expectations. (laughs) (laughs) It's a movie that threatened to not be made for a long time. Uh, It felt like it was the next Gambit. Um, I'm just looking on the Wikipedia page. It was talked about for the first time in 2009. And then in 2014, Josh Boone first entered the picture... I think they filmed it or they like it was in active production in in 2016 was filmed in 2017 and then I'm not sure if you guys remember this but there was a lot of talk about that it had been filmed and um that it was it, I, you know as every blockbuster does these days it had reshoots penciled in mm-hmm. except they saw the assembly cut of the movie and the studio went uh, this it just doesn't feel like because I imagine at the time they're making this right. This is pre-Disney merger. They're thinking this is potentially the new direction. Once we get past the the first class section of what we're doing, once they're all aged up, maybe this is the new avenue to explore that we introduce these new mutants and we follow them instead, or it becomes like our second our second franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, so they go, well, well, yeah, we, we, that's what we kind of want it to be. And it doesn't feel like that is that. So can we reshoot it substantially enough that we add a whole extra mutant into it? So their plans were to go away and add a whole new character into this movie. 
Except that never happens and the reshoots never happen because the the Fox merger does start to happen and Disney does acquire Fox and this movie had already been pushed back two or three times then gets pushed back again and gets pushed back again because of the merger and pushed back again because of the pandemic and then eventually sneaks out into cinemas last summer. Um, I think in broadly its original form except I get the impression from it that because it didn't ever get the kind of functional reshoots that it needed it's a little bit shonky and it's a little bit cut it's a little bit cut together in places Mm. that is certainly the impression i had while i was watching it i was watching some of it going like if this had been given the right time and budget that it needed this scene would have been shot to make it actually good Mm. like there was there are a lot of bits where certainly the mood and the tone of the film just sort of skewed wildly out of like out of the comfort zone it had established um i mean there were plot strands that were just very thinly there but not developed in a way that would make them satisfying yeah that you you thought you were going to get a bit more from and yeah I, i i don't really feel like i come away from the movie and there is anything that is completely unsatisfactorily tied up no it's just that I, I do agree there's some stuff there that you think, oh, is this going to be a major element or are we going to dig into this more? And the movie kind of does does what it needs to do, but doesn't, you know, it's in and out in just over 90 minutes, isn't it? For which for a superhero movie is pretty, pretty impressive. I mean, in um, a way, I find it interesting for that reason, because you're like, oh, this is this is like a first draft of the movie. <laughs> like, it's interesting to see a superhero movie along those lines because we don't really get it. See, I kind of feel like, though, maybe it's almost like a, it's this weird, almost like not somewhere like even 0.5 or 1.5 draft in that I don't think they were ever able to fully deliver on the first draft. Because, again, mm. the, the, the talk when this movie was in active development and was being cast, um, Rosario Dawson was going to be in at one point as the as the uh, doctor character. She was I think she had to pull out because of the Netflix stuff, the Marvel Netflix stuff. Um and there was also talk that both James McAvoy's Professor X and Alexandra Shipp's Storm were going to play significant roles in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you watch this and go, I can kind of believe that, but also I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it could have been. I could definitely have seen something in the third act of the movie, or maybe there could have been some kind of like visions weaved in, perhaps. I don't know, um, but yeah, it's certainly it's certainly an odd movie in in that regard. James, I think listeners have probably already got a little bit of a sense of what what you think about it. Mike, you were you were brand new to this film this week. James and I saw it back in mm-hmm. cinemas, uh, but you saw it for the first time uh, streaming this week. So, where do you where do you land on it? It's not the worst X-Men movie by far, which is <laughs> something you, we can definitively say, I think, or yes. in, my, in my opinion anyway. So it's really fascinating to hear you guys talk about it almost like a like a, 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 um, a, a, like a first draft movie or a version 0.9 or something. Whereas to me, it just comes across like a pilot for a TV show. Maybe between this and when it goes to series, they might have recast one of the roles or beefed <laughs> up or rechanged kind of a to- tone here or there. But, it, you know, it's got a nice 
novel aspect to it, which is that it's short, it's contained, almost mm-hmm. too contained in some ways. The fact that it has such a small ensemble, it, they are literally contained in one location for the, the whole film. And this sort of genre thing they're trying, which again, I wouldn't, I, I'm unclear because this was always touted as the 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 horror movie, the X Men horror movie, and it comes off a little bit soft, like it's a PG thirteen kind of YA take on that. Mm. And I'm not sure whether that was something in reshoots they would want to beef up, or whether they were they were scared of it being too scary. Or uh, you know, I'm trying to think back to actually probably listening to this podcast during that whole span when this was in production <laughs> and hearing you yeah. guys speculate so much about it. I also wonder whether I I'd rem- I remembered I hadn't read reread all of the history before watching it, so I couldn't remember whether they had done reshoots to put in James McAvoy, which actually weirdly. Maybe I'm in a WandaVision kind of zone here, but it's actually a really good red herring when you're expecting Professor X to turn up at some point, <laughs> considering yeah. the plot point is they think that Professor X is behind it all. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But as, but as a sort of like Thursday, well, Tuesday evening film to watch, um, where, you know, you don't really want something that's too taxing, it was actually quite a, a perfectly good three-star movie, really. I have not been a big fan of a lot of the recent X-Men movies. And I mean, like, I know a lot of people will go, yeah, no shit, they've made Dark Phoenix <laughs> and Apocalypse. And yes, I am I am very much talking about Dark Phoenix and Apocalypse. But I'm also talking about, from a personal point of view, I'm talking about Deadpool 2. I don't mm. really like Days of Future Past. I think Logan works. I don't like the previous two X-Men um the previous two wolverine movies um and i would say like so within the last decade of x-men movies i think for me this is like it's deadpool and logan as the ones that really work and then this is the one that's solid and okay like i would watch this a hundred times over before i watch apocalypse again Mm. or before i watch dark phoenix again like those are incompetent movies that that incomprehensibly as x-men movies aren't about anything and like yeah i i it's it's fine for some superhero movies to just be pure escapist enjoyment but i love that this movie has an idea of what it wants to do it it's it's essentially a haunted house movie where there is a central mystery which is why is all this weird shit happening to these kids and who is running this facility. And you've got a group of kids who all have their kind of big, huge um, comic book world trauma. Like, they've all killed people. That's the that's part of the setup here. They've all killed people. Uh-huh. Um, and I should say at this point, actually, uh, listeners, there's not going to be like a spoiler-free section for this. It's, it's not... It, it, while it's, it's a new movie, new release, it's... Yeah. <laughs> It's not a new release, so we're just we're just going to be talking about it. Um, so if you don't want spoilers, uh, tap out now, I guess. Um, but yeah, they, so they've they've all killed people. They all have that big meta, like, sorry, that big like in world trauma. But they also just all have their kind of standard teen angst and standard mm. teen hang ups. And there is romance, and there is uh, there is like just. That your, your standard kind of team group dynamics um, that I actually think Boone with his background has a has a really good handle on that stuff um, I mean that's the think... that's the stuff that I really liked about this movie actually is that it, it takes 
takes the premise of being a mutant back to basics and it's like, you know, what if you're a teenager and your body's changing and actually it's the worst thing in the world? Um, yeah. And then it restores, like, the soap opera stuff to mm. the X-Men, which is has always been very prominent in the comics, but which the movies have been utterly uninterested in exploring. I mean, in a way, it's one of those X-Men movies that skews very close to the comics for that reason. Just because it's got a focus on these dynamics and the the character metaphors rather than what if they were these big sci-fi heroes. Which is what the, the main strand tends, tends to do. Yeah, and in, in the other films, this would probably be like the third tier narrative with Anna Paquin. Or, or yeah, where they have whilst... like two characters. Yeah. Yeah. Or you get to watch you get to watch Cyclops and Jean go to the mall for one scene, um, <laughs> and um, and uh, and you know I was reading this week because we just we just watched the third to all the boys movie, which <laughs> um, which uh, Lana Condor is in um, and was was playing Jubilee in um, that's Apocalypse. Apocalypse, yeah. Yeah, and there's that. There was that sequence that was kind of touted of them going to the mall and hanging out in Jubilee. We were like, oh, they've got a proper Jubilee in this one, mm-hmm. and it all got cut um, mm-hmm. because the movie didn't have time for that shit. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I kind of like that this movie does, and I think we can probably talk about some of the <clears throat> issues with some of the casting, James, that I think you yeah. alluded to at the start of the podcast, but just taken on face value. Um, I think this is a pretty charismatic cast. I think there are there are some there are there, there, well for me there's an obvious standout. Um, but <laughs> but like I think they're all. I don't I don't think I don't think there's anyone in there that I'm like oh they're a real dud they're a weak link. I mean Alice Braga has to kind of just play it kind of. I mean, even when you get to the twists and turns with her character, it is pretty standard for what you expect of that character, and she's playing yeah. it pretty muted. But all of the kids, I think, are, I think are good, and each of them, each of them has a thing. I think their powers are depicted pretty well. I think, mm-hmm. I, like, I'm not. I, I, there's nothing in here that I'm like f- falling head over heels for, but. I just think it's all kind of solid. And so when I look at my letterbox page for this movie and I see some of the reviews and I'm seeing half a star, one star and pans across the, across the board, I'm just kind of baffled because uh, like, yes, it's uh, like I can completely say, see someone that might watch this and go, it's boring, it's dull. Um, but I, I have enough fun with it. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just, I, I think on on no level, certainly within the scope of the past five years of X-Men movies, on no level is this movie incompetent. Mm-hmm. It has it has a story it wants to tell, and it does it. And I, I'm only semi-kidding when I say this movie asks what what if there were new mutants? Because <laughs> I do think I do think it, it it competently says this. They would be going through this kind of shit. They're teenagers. Mm-hmm. And um if we if we kind of put them in this in this literal, uh, which was so so funny watching this after one division, this uh, this <laughs> this force field uh, that we, we stick them in this haunted house inside of a force field that they can't get out of, and then add this element of everyone's nightmares are going to get brought to life. Um, yeah, I think it does. I think it does a pretty solid job. I, I'm yeah, I've I've watched it twice in six months, and I've had a good time. 
Yeah, I, I find it interesting you mentioned the reviews because I went back and looked at them after watching it, and I don't know if we've talked. I don't know if I've talked about this with you guys on this podcast before. Even if it feels very like I'm repeating myself, but critics love to be served like an easy pan. Um, <laughs> you know, like if they know the film's bad going in, they can you know you can kind of like rest and be like, then you're looking for like how to write a negative review. Like, yeah. and this by the time this came out, you've got this thing two and a half years after its initial release date. It's finally limping out in the middle of a pandemic. It's already yeah. a punchline. We've 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 all kind of given the five star reviews to Endgame and maybe Birds of Prey has got pretty good reviews as well. So now that's this is a bad comic. This is like a yeah you know, they can give this a negative review. That's not to say that I, I think all critics are snobs. Some critics are snobs, but also critics <laughs> can be lazy because it's you know sometimes quite a boring job. Um, <laughs> and and I've I've definitely fallen foul of that at times as well. But I can see how a film like this, which is just okay and does its job but maybe suffers from maybe a lack of vision and ambition beyond the basic thing that it's pitching you um you you can sometimes see that limit you can see that limit of ambition as being something really negative and really lay into it and you can because also it's a very earnest film and josh boone is coming at this hybrid genre thing of ya horror from the ya side rather than having someone coming from the horror side and add the ya teen feels yes and it it definitely it definitely (laughs) you know it succeeds at the ya stuff more than the horror the horror is appropriately for a superhero movie very cgi heavy whenever it's realized and that's not always successful um but i think it's creepy and i think there are Mm -hmm. moments that work and there are and and when it's when it's properly grounded in their trauma i think it 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 has it has moments i think within all of those horror scenes where i'm not scared throughout but i had i think there are there's there's a moment or two here or there where i go oh yeah that's that's creepy that that wigged me out a little bit. I mean, I think I think the scariest thing about the movie is probably Anya Taylor Joy. <laughs> like her performance is so ice cold and like just malevolent, <laughs> frequently racist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like that character is more scary than anything that happens in the film. <laughs> like. I I found the 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 horror stuff like the CGI bear, you know, all that stuff was a bit limp and predictable. But her performance was really sort of icy. I enjoyed that more than more than the the conventional horror bits. I I, I tried to put myself into like twenty sixteen shoes while looking at this cast because you know in the way that <laughs> Fox has as kind of approach used to approach casting young mutants they'd just be like get me this person from this franchise this person seems to be popping popping off on telly who's gonna be famous next and so that yeah they get like one of the stranger things cast in charlie heaton Mm -hmm. they get like Maisie williams who seems to be popping off towards the end of game of thrones and annie taylor joy at that point was still sort of like indie level you know impressing in sort of films but hadn't you know she it's amazing that now she's the most famous yeah and the one that seems to have like the the the, the biggest sort of upward trajectory after i think for me it's probably she'd she'd almost certainly well she'd had a breakthrough in the witch who knows? She probably had been cast in Split already, mm-hmm. um, which, but I guess we didn't know that was that could have just been another jokey, you know, a, another poke fun at M Night Shyamalan movie. Um, <laughs> but for me, it feels a little bit like casting um, Jennifer Lawrence in yep. 
Hunger Games. Well, in first class off of Winter's Bone. Because actually she's in first class real early mm. in her career. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it feels like a similar thing to, to that to me. Like if I were Kevin Feige right now, I would be going... Um, you know, the multiverse might be open, but at the very least, we're making another Deadpool uh, Deadpool movie with Colossus as one of the key characters, <laughs> whose little sister is Ilyana yeah. Rasputin. Who has got Anya Taylor's Joy, Anya Taylor Joy's number, and what does her contract say? <laughs> can, <laughs> yeah, quite. Can can we get because you know she is um, she's like megastar now? I think right. She feels yeah. like. Um, yeah, she in that Jennifer Lawrence mold where she is uh, young people franchise friendly on the one hand, but on the other has given um, enough interesting performances that you're like, oh, is is she going to be winning Emmys and Oscars? Uh, Zendaya is another is another example of that. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, who you know feels perfectly <clears throat> at home doing those fun little Spider-Man trailers, just hanging out with Tom Holland <laughs> and and is winning an Emmy and might be getting an Oscar nomination a month from now. So, yeah. Um, if I was Kevin Feige, I, I, just, I just think that character works. She lo- I think the design of these characters may... I don't know about Rain Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that character's always been tough to do in the comics as well because, like, they... Every artist approaches them slightly differently, whereas Magic slash Oyana has always had a really solid look to her and one that they just they translated it really well. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it, that especially they translated a lot of these characters well, but the, but Magic is the one who really jumps out as being like, "Hey, this is super comics accurate and all the better for it." And also, I mean, Anya Taylor Joy looks like an anime character. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Just to be, just to begin with, so she's perfect for this kind of stuff. And then give her a fun accent and a <laughs> wild haircut, and then a fucking CGI metal arm and sword and a dragon. Like, yes, great. <laughs> yeah. All tick to all of these things. I think I what I probably should do is just give our listeners who haven't watched New Mutants yet a bit of a whistle stop kind yeah. of setup for 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 the movie. So. At the start of the film, we see um, uh, Danny Moonstar, who um, lives on a reservation um, with her dad. There is some kind of uh, like catastrophic event unfolding. It seems like it might be some kind of um, attack or weather-related thing. And then she, she, uh, her, her dad is killed. She is running from something collapses hits her head and the next thing she knows she wakes up and she is in this facility um the facility is run by dr reyes played by alice braga and um dr reyes dr reyes is um (laughs) is kind of implying that she might be working for a certain bald-headed mutant who's kind of trying to just vet these more damaged mutants before he welcomes them into the X Academy. Um, but spoiler alert, she's actually working for Mr. Sinister. It's it's Essex Corp. Because <laughs> that's a, that's the other thing, right? This this movie is <laughs> this movie's clip was clearly another one of the nods towards eventually we're gonna do Mr. Sinister and he's gonna yep. be a big deal. <laughs> um 
they never got there. Nope. Um, so also in the institution, there's uh, Maisie Williams playing Rain Sinclair, um, who is like her her power is werewolf. <laughs> Have I, have I summed that up su- sufficiently? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you tell Joy, as we said, is Ileana Rasputin, who is... Uh, so, Rain Sinclair's Wolfsbane, right? Yep. Ileana is magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, her power is that she kind of has access to, like, a limbo world. Yeah, she can she can teleport via a limbo dimension. Hmm. And has been at one at one point in the comics and in the context of this movie, stuck there for a prolonged period of time, I yeah. think. She was raised uh, there, yeah. Charlie Heaton, who is the Stranger Stranger Things kid, uh, plays Sam Guffrey, who is Cannonball, and his power is like massive energy and momentum kind of powers. He turns himself into like a human missile. Yeah, a cannonball. A cannonball. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't say already, Blue Hunt is the actress that plays Danny Moonstar. Then you've got Henry Zaga as Roberto de Costa who is like a Brazilian rich kid whose power is that he uh, turns on fire, but not in a cool Johnny Storm way, in a kind of traumatic, I will burn anyone I get close to to death kind of way. <laughs> um, so they're all the people that are stuck in there. And basically what we don't, Danny doesn't know what her power is. She will come to discover by the end of the movie that her power is effectively to manifest people's worst fears. So um, she manifests the priest who was assaulting rain um when she was younger and and branding her skin she manifests him she manifests these very buffy-esque gentlemen masked figures um who uh traumatized iliana when she was younger Uh, she brings back uh like visions of uh sam's dead dad and the mine where he kind of caused the death of his father and she brings back, well, she, she brings back a burning corpse uh, for um, for Bobby DeCosta. So uh, these, all of this creepy stuff is happening through the movie whilst Dr. Reyes is uh, monitoring them. And basically she's monitoring them for Mr. Sinister because she wants to turn them into killing weapons. Like the Weapon X squad in Deadpool, right? She wants them to be, to be bad X-Men who are going to go off and murder people. Um. Mm. And um, and the kids don't know that, but kind of are slowly try- are slowly throughout the movie, kind of figuring out that something's not right, and eventually eventually fight back. But at that point, Danny summons her worst fear, which is this demon bear, and the bear um, they have to fight the bear in the in a in a very strange third act that feels. <laughs> um, really super contained like that's that's way that's that's certainly the one area where i thought yeah they maybe could have done with another four weeks and 10 million dollars to go and fix this Mm. release release the josh boone cut (laughs) let's hashtag that after this episode let's get that going um james can we talk about some of the casting uh because some of this was controversial right and also i kind of I think what Mike was talking about in terms of the movie was an easy punching bag when it came out. It didn't help itself like it spelt the name of one of the comics, uh, one of the key creators in the um, in the credits incorrectly. Um, uh. And he was pretty vocal about being annoyed about that. And then there was some controversy, I think, particularly around the casting of Henry Zaga as, as yeah. Roberto. So... Roberto in the comics is a dark-skinned Brazilian and 
in the in the film he is almost passing for white, which is yeah. it's not a great look, especially when you also have Reyes, a sort of Afro Puerto Rican character who you have also cast as light as you could reasonably get away with. Like that was that was where the whitewashing stuff came from. And it's strange, isn't it? Because you've you've got Blue Hunt cast authentically in the movie, and it it feels strange that they didn't have they didn't have that same approach for all of the characters. Um, and then, like I said before, the fact that Anya Taylor-Joy does spend the first mm. 30, 40 minutes of this movie calling Danny stuff like Pocahontas and mm. Standing Wind or whatever it is that she that she calls it. It's just, it's it's odd. It doesn't reflect well on the movie that, that kind of... Otherwise, I think, like, feels like it should stand up pretty well for... Uh, for you know a young fairly woke audience watching this film yeah i sort of when when this kind of thing happens what i look at is the producers behind it and the fact that it's you know it's simon kimberg again 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 and i sort of i look at it and go well if there was someone who was maybe a bit less like an old white guy running this I mean, there are there are also two female producers. There's Lauren Shula Donner and Karen Rosenfeld. But I mean, you you certainly felt again over the last five years that Kinberg became the dominant force mm-hmm. on all of these X Men movies. Yeah. Um, and you know, maybe maybe if this this one had got a bit more attention and had got those reshoots, it would have ended up like a Dark Phoenix. Quite possibly. There's every there's every possibility that it would. Um, but yeah, I do wonder whether some, whether in, in some other ways, maybe this flew slightly under the radar. And do you know what I mean? It kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast. I wonder whether, I wonder whether there is a sense that someone's, someone sat there going, well, they won't be mad because look, we've cast Blue Hunt and Alice Braga and Adam Beach. So what, yeah. you know, what, what more do they want? <laughs> and like, what you know, what do the wokes the, want? Do you know, like, um, you know, white old man Hollywood going, we've we've ticked the boxes. Surely that's okay. Then. Yeah, surely we get some free some free passes. Mm. Well, the, the the casting is one thing. The script, um, as I said, it's a very sort of earnest sort of script in a YA way, but it's very clearly trying to play in a John Hughes kind of vein. They, the one thing you missed out of that plot summary, Joe, is that it's also basically a breakfast club setup where mm. very different kids all rally round because they all realise they've got trauma in their past and they learn the true <laughs> thing is friendship all along. Yes. But, um, yeah, no, it is. It's, it's exactly that. And one aspect of that is sometimes they, they may be trying to authentically portray the bullying language that teenagers can use to each other, but yeah. then realising that on screen there should be an, an extra sensitivity. And we've not mentioned it's co-written by Nate Lee. And when you look at Nate Lee with a K on the front, um, and Nate Lee uh, started out in the jackass kind of family. So you're not going to find sensitivity necessarily from that quarter. Mm. Um, it's interesting, though. There was a, there was a bunch of people that were, were said to have worked on the script at some point. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Scott Frank was one of them. Um, but I think I, you know, I think this, I think this script got tinkered with a lot. Um, and yet, and yet, still relies so much on cliches. 
you know, like there's an old Native American proverb. I've, I wrote a few of these down. <laughs> so these are the cliches that come up. <laughs> we are bu- we are bookended by this Native American proverb. And it's and this is sort of what I mean about how like there's not that sort of even though we, we I think we all come out quite positive on this film, but it 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 just doesn't have that supercharge behind it to go beyond the very basic thing that it's doing. Mm. Like you know, it's going to quite it's going to look at the mutant metaphor as being about being a teenager and using mm. supernatural metaphors as a way of looking at teenage trauma and coming of age, just like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which, oh, by the way, we're going to show clips from every other yeah. scene. This is, that's a weird thing, right, that has happened in all of the recent Kimberg movies, is that you'll get characters watching old stuff that, like, refers to it. I just, I find it bizarre. Like, in New Mutants, they watch Buffy. In Logan, they're watching a Western. In watching Shane. Yeah, Shane. Yeah, they're watching Shane. That's it. In um, in I think Apocalypse, they're watching Star Trek. Is it? It's a really mm-hmm. odd detail that happened. It's happened in all the last like four or five X Men movies. The, sh- the the Shane one is the one that makes me laugh the most because I mean I like Logan, um, but it's almost as if James Mangold made the Wolverine and went. It's almost like because I made it in Japan. No one gets that it's really a western. Like they, <laughs> I guess a couple of people have spotted the the subtle samurai nods that I had in there. But it's not like everyone's really given me the credit for realizing that. Wouldn't Wolverine be great in a western? Right, this next time, I'm going to show them the western, <laughs> and they're not they're not going to miss it because ultimately Logan is a western. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, just to drag it back around to what Mike was saying, um, I think the thing for me that I really, I wanted more out of this movie was like the romance subplot that they kind of did a couple of scenes of. And I was like, oh, this would have been, if I was making the movie, I would have beefed this up a lot. Like, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few, well, there's a couple of romance subplots. Um, there is one between... Um, <laughs> And this is the one that's given, you know, barely a barely room to breathe um, between Ilyana and. Um, <laughs> I would not describe any Bobby. aspect of that subplot as being romantic. No, but like <laughs> they're both horniness. But yeah, they're t- they're two teens who are kind of horny for each other, yeah. and it looks like it's manifesting, but actually, it's just like a nightmare for Bobby. Yeah. Um, and then there is the more substantial romance between. Danny and Rain, mm-hmm. um, and I—I I don't know. I, f- I think the movie puts a- enough legwork in. I think that what almost throws you is because you're not expecting new mu- new mutants to have a lesbian romance at the center of it, or certainly I wasn't. The scenes early on play like, "Oh, I'm the friend who's taking you under my wing. I'm the guy," mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, and it's—it's mm-hmm. it's not really until it's not really until the scene in the shower where you go. Oh, this is. This feels like pointedly sexual for mm-hmm. a moment. Um, <laughs> that you're showing these these two girls in the shower next to each other, and like both visibly kind of checking each other out because one of the because she spots the scar on uh-huh. Rain's shoulder, and I was like, oh, her, that's. That's interesting. Is there something there? Maybe, maybe not. And then, and then you do you get like um, I guess you get the relationship consummated with a kiss in the middle of the movie. And it did. I, I mean, like, 
for me anyway, it felt quietly radical because the movie hadn't had the opportunity to be going like, we're going to have an exclusively gay moment. Um, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't feel like something that was there to be, um, to be like going, "Hey guys, look how progressive we are. We yeah. we got a we got a gay romance in this movie." Um, I mean, interesting. It didn't seem to get mentioned at all. Hmm. You would struggle to find anyone who hasn't watched the film who knows that that moment is in there. But I, but you know there wasn't there wasn't really a there wasn't any promotional cycle for well, this movie. In, in, in the end in <laughs> the end it just came out and you know there wasn't disney didn't care they would just take whatever money they could get from it yeah. we joked about it but i think this is accurate i think that this was a movie that they didn't want to premiere on disney plus yeah. um probably probably especially after what happened with artemis fowl that's like is this is this really what you want to be to be pinning your your big new streaming platform on <laughs> movies that aren't um that aren't that good are, enough or that aren't generally well liked yeah um so yeah i i i thought that relationship was sweet and and played as or as, as oh yeah I, I agree i just i think i think there should have been more of it i think it should have been the spine of the film because it's the it's the character stuff that worked most for me is like the idea of those characters finding each other through their trauma Mm -hmm. but that's sort of feeding back to this the sense of the film and you know ironically i'm going to use the mess while saying it plays everything with a straight bat we're sort of used to films trying to be cleverer than they are wrapping things up in irony you know i think of deadpool Mm. deadpool where it's like she's my girlfriend you you whatever you know sort of that sort of there's there's something extra an extra clever clever twist to everything now Whereas this film really plays everything very straight, very sincere, which mm-hmm. is very, I think, quite welcome, quite novel, quite fresh mm. in a way. Um, and in terms of you want that romance to be the spine of the movie, it's something where like, oh, if this was the pilot to the TV series, I'd love to see that develop uh-huh. over the next season. Yeah. Um, but it's the same with all of the relationships. It's quite over the top in the way that a teen movie would be. We don't often get superhero movies now because they're four quadrant movies that are just really down the line trying to pitch to a specific demographic in the way that I think this is trying to do, maybe in an old-fashioned way, in a in terms of limited ambition. It's really aiming for something like a, like a 12-year-old's movie, 13-year-old's movie. I think this I think this would have killed on Netflix to be honest mm-hmm. with you. If if Disney had just had gone like right, who wants this? I think if Netflix had put this on as one of their, you know, as this is going to be the banner for a weekend mm. and, hey, if you like the kissing booth and you like to all the boys, yeah. here you go. Uh, and, and, and you know, and, and still have enough cachet about it to be able to appeal to the old guard crowd. Right, yeah, especially because Netflix it's an X-Men movie. Though. People would have been like, hey, yeah. the new X-Men movie's out. Like, yeah. people would have people would have watched it if it was on Netflix. But then we've had it that is... conversation before, haven't we, about how Netflix is so dominant that it is the conversation sometimes. And sometimes putting yeah. something on Netflix that is available elsewhere makes people go, oh, hey, that thing is available, even though it's always been around. But I think certainly, like, Netflix has that demo wrapped up as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. More, more so than even Disney Plus has been. Like, I think Disney Plus at the moment is is trapping in families and it's trapping in... <laughs> 
uh, pensioners like us who want to watch <laughs> The Simpsons again. Yeah, hey, no, your 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 Star Wars, your Marvel watchers, I think, yeah, are, the, yeah. are, the, are the next phase of people being trapped. I, I'd I'd be interested to see whether this kind of um, this wave of original programming, more stuff like the High School Musical show, um, whether all of that landing on the platform. Well, also um, stuff like Ms. Marvel is that going to pull in like a teen audience? Yeah, potentially. Mm. Yeah, an Iron Heart. Yeah, um, I thought it was a shame that Disney Plus. Uh, I think it will end up on there in this country. In fact, I think it is the the Love Simon spin off because uh, this this movie reminded me a little bit of Love Simon as well in a way, mm-hmm. which it's um, it's kind of it, it it's so earnest. It, it puts its foot in its mouth on a couple of occasions unintentionally, but you kind of walk away from it, and go, "Oh, was, that was quite nice <laughs> for 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 a movie where." the antagonist gets her face ripped to pieces and then chewed up by a giant CGI bear. It's quite nice. <laughs> quite likes that. <laughs> it is quite a wild way that it ends, isn't it? Um, yeah. I was surprised, really, that it felt it needed to have that big, spectacular showdown at the end. But, James, I, I, I know you weren't interested at all in Legion, were you? You, just, you said that's not X-Men. I try, Yeah, I tried it and it didn't push my buttons. I mean, I didn't watch that either, but... But I never I... got around to the second season. <laughs> kept kept telling James that I would, and I just stopped after one season. <laughs> but but James, there's the sort of um, sometimes killjoy comics accurate fan <laughs> in the room of who's read New Mutants and kind of yeah. likes that era of, of X Men. Is there enough of that in here? Are they are they me- mixing things up and too much? Wow, Alexa just got in. <laughs> uh, are they mixing things up a lot or is it actually quite accurate to what um no it's pretty there? accurate like they they tweak some of the powers slightly um they're quite directly adapting some stuff from uh, quite early new mutants comics um it was issues 18 to 20 of the original new mutants run which was like the the demon bear saga where a similar thing happens like the team get together and fight this sort of demonic entity um that killed danny's parents and mm. destroyed her home in a way i think that that accuracy sort of muddies this because this is an x-men film that is coming from the tradition of the the movies where they're like hard sci-fi mm-hmm. and in the comics they have the whole marvel universe and all its magic and mysticism to fall mm. back on whereas in this i'm i'm watching it going like it's great that you've done this x-men film why are they fighting a ghost they're fighting their teenage neuroses, James. Yeah, but their fears. <laughs> but also, they're fighting a demon story. She's fighting the metaphor of her fear. <laughs> yeah, it's about the it's about the bear that you feed, James. She was feed, <laughs> she, she was feeding the the wrong bear. <laughs> yeah, and now she's going to feed a different one. She's going to feed a polar bear now. Um. <laughs> I don't, you know, I I don't mind any of that stuff. It's just I don't the, mind for, it. I just for more, it's more that it ends with them fighting a giant CGI yeah. demon bear, which feels weird. And then also, that's the that like I said, that's the stretch of the movie that to me feels the least inspired because I think I say this every time we watch an X Men movie, but. I really want to see them combine their powers, and mm. one of, one of the things that one of the things that I do know about the New Mutants is that don't they have a thing called the Cannonball Special, <laughs> which is like this great team up move where like one of them that doesn't I think Bobby and 
I might be making this up. I mean, I'm sure Bobby and Sam <laughs> combine their powers. So like they're playing, they're like... playing off the fastball special. Oh, is that right? Yeah. What's that? What's the fastball? The fastball special? special is from the Uncanny X Men comics where Colossus throws Wolverine. Yeah, we, oh, see, mm. that's oh, God. Don't we? Don't we all want to see that on screen? Yeah, quite. But I wanted to see. I wanted to see them teaming up. I wanted to see them using their powers together because it, it felt like they would be able to. But then that's that's the problem to. with all of the X Men movies, right? Is that they're not mm-hmm. team movies in that way. They just the fight scenes are always uninspired because they just have one person fighting one other person. Yeah, and they don't do those and it, things. And sometimes they're just trying to cross a road. They <laughs> they literally take their turns in this one though. And I think I I, I was watched uh, rewatching it going. This Ileana fighting is still like it's cool. She's got a little CGI dragon, uh-huh. and um, she's got this badass sword, this metal arm. She's jumping through portals and slicing at the bear, and it's great. And then she gets knocked aside, and and someone's like, uh, "Come on, Bobby, you're up!" And he stands there and goes, "I'm on fire now." <laughs> you go, okay. What are you gonna do? Oh, I don't know, but I'm on fire. Yeah, it, <laughs> it reminded just... me of the the Josh Trank Fantastic Four. Where they just have like a massive CGI fight breaks out for sort of, you know, scant reasons, uh, and everyone just sort of does their one thing, and then it's over, and you're like, okay, fair hey, enough. Hashtag release the trunk cut. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I want to see that movie. Yeah, it couldn't yeah. be worse, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that that end sequence for me, sort of off the back of what you're saying, Joe. Their power sets were were so defined as uh, they're they're all extensions of the trauma, mm-hmm. and only ever really discussed in in relation to the trauma they have to revisit throughout the course of the film. That when it gets to using them in action, it's just kind of I don't really know what the rules are. Even with Ileana, who has the the coolest set of powers, when she just she like falls over at one point and then is like, oh, I can't get up again. It's like what what's yeah. actually happened here? Surely you're 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 this badass who can you know teleport between dimensions and have this massive sword. So like, what actually happened there to knock you out? Um, and it's just that thing of mixing two films together where it it had done a really good job of 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 discussing these powers as extensions of one thing, and then trying to turn it to an action film at the end. It's the thing where like with in the, in the, in the sort of the the Brian Singer films, they still like stratified it, didn't they? Where you would have Rogue. Or, or Kitty Pride, who were not action-based characters. Mm-hmm. They're they're the extent they're the metaphor characters of, of growing up. But then you still have the the very clear action <laughs> characters. And Cyclops, they don't care about Cyclops's power being an extension of any. <laughs> they don't sort of care metaphor. about his trauma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a representation of a singular vision. I mean, a character without a personality cannot have trauma. <laughs> 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 not have trauma and angst. Um, it does. It does almost make you think. Hey, maybe there's something to the MCU's conveyor belt approach to action, which is, hey, director, we're hiring you for the thing you do really good. At, you you do really well. Um, yeah, we've already previs two thirds of the action in the movie. <laughs> you you can you can maybe give some steer around some punch ups to the script over those sequences, or like maybe give us some direction on on where you'd like to move things. But uh, broadly, we're kind of there. And if we, if this goes really well and you're still around for the sequel, maybe you'll have a bit more input mm-hmm. uh, from earlier in the process, a la James Gunn, right? Um, 
Because, you know, that that to me certainly feels like when I watched Thor Ragnarok, that's what Taika Waititi did. It was like, hey, we know you're really good at all of this stuff, so come in and do that. The action, don't worry about it, we got it sorted. And you kind of, you kind of wonder, like, if the Fox movies had been doing that with directors, um, you know, maybe you wouldn't have the X-Men crossing a road, and maybe... And maybe you wouldn't have, you know, maybe you'd just say to Josh Boone, come in and nail all of that stuff that you're good at, which is the team relationship stuff. And we promise that when the action arrives, we'll make it good. Mm. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure that that's the way I want every movie to be made, but I think it, it perhaps tells you why Marvel's action tends to be at the, at at the least competent, um, if not always the most, um, I don't know. It doesn't really give you faith in the future of cinema. I, I mean, maybe maybe the thing we're missing about this approach is just that it's a lot easier this way, right? Because you can do things like move character moments around and, and add in different people into the movie if you want to. Whereas if, you, do, if you do have do a group of characters... So what I think they would have done with Storm and Professor X is they would have had them on the outside. And it would have been a... Uh, it would have been like um, the Silent Hill movie where right. you have a bunch of characters inside doing one thing and you have Sean Bean on the outside doing a different thing and they never actually meet until the one scene. In the Silent Hill movie, the the characters were only together at the very start of the film and then the rest of it, they never actually interact. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been that sort of addition. Like they wouldn't have tried to put someone else inside the plot. They would have just had an extra strand to the plot. But I think they were also, they, aside from that, they were talking about adding literally another new mutant. That was that was something else that they were considering. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, I mean, from the original New Mutants, it's tough to pick someone. Like, um, Karma is a character who has mind control powers, so it feels like she might have fit in. Magma has an interesting past in that she believed she grew up in um, a place called Nova Roma, which is like the secret final bastion of the original Roman Empire. Right, okay. Um, but her powers were just like volcano connected, so she could go on fire and stuff, and, you know, we've got that covered. Um, there's no one who jumps out from me from this cast like maybe one of the later characters like Richter or Shatterstar or someone or or Boom Boom like the X-Force characters who are in the New Mutants towards the end of the run maybe one of those but again you feel like they're turned up in a Deadpool movie more than a New Mutants movie but even if you think about it on the level of who you know as I said Breakfast Club Who's missing from that lineup? There's not really space in that in, in that ensemble. You've yeah, got like got the, the, goth, the rich kids. You've got the working class kids. You've got the, sort of the, the you know the the, the bully, the female bully, mm. the queen bee type. Mm-hmm. So you know, what would you maybe oh, the nerd like a the Anthony Michael <laughs> Hall type character? Yeah, it just needed a, it needed a full on nerd in there. <laughs> Who's the nerdiest X-Men? The nerdiest (laughs) X-Men, like, I mean... Well, Prodigy, maybe, his character, like, he just absorbs the knowledge of everyone around him. 
Um, I'm trying to remember there was a really bad sort of New Mutants era character who had a transforming wheelchair. That was not great. Uh, was he called Wizkid? Yeah. Wow. I don't know. There are not many nerds in the X-Men. <laughs> so, James, with the actual specific characters in this, mm-hmm. um, with with your New Mutants comics knowledge, is there anyone in here that strikes you as that's a really good depiction or, you know, if they'd have if they'd have kept going with this, that feels like someone who was really accurate or that they've done something, they've they've introduced a twist to a certain character. You're like, oh, that works. Or... Okay, so I'll, I'll quickly run through the cast, right? Um, Ileana is basically perfect as, as to how she's been in the comics for the last 15, 20 years. Like, very happy with that version. Um, so, so I'm going to need to read some magic comics then, it sounds like. Yeah, like she's been a supporting cast member of the X-Men. Certainly during the Bendis era, she was very prominent and exactly as portrayed here, more or less. I remember hearing her talked about a little bit back when I was listening to JMR's Explain the X-Men and just thinking, that's one of the coolest backstories. And like the yeah. <laughs> the, the some of the X-Men, you know, with, with all of the time traveling and like people being people's sons out of nowhere and... and <laughs> and existing now in the same timeline or whatever but like yeah she was one of those that it was like it was wild enough that i was like oh that is wild but also i could get my head around it enough because in the comics doesn't she like just disappear as like an eight or a nine-year-old and then pop back up as like even younger than that i think like maybe five or six she's abducted by belasco the demon and raised in limbo as his heir and then sort of comes back through a portal as a you know 16 year old with a with giant a soul sword and a, now the dragon's from somewhere else. So, um. yeah, so, so, so you're not bothered by Lockheed becoming her sock puppet? Um, not really. I thought it was a fun, like, the thing is, the the X-Men of the movies are never going to do all the space opera that the comics did. So, like, you can't really have Lockheed be a dragon from <laughs> an alien planet. But he is eventually a dragon. I was trying to figure that out in the context of the movie, because... Uh, I watched this with my wife and she said to me, um, she was like, oh, how come it's a dragon now? And she was like, obviously pleased that suddenly there was like Spyro had popped up in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's Lockheed. And she was like, where did he come from? And I went, oh, I, I uh... so this movie had an interesting production history and I'm not sure all of the dots are joined. <laughs> But yeah. is it just is it just that uh, in the logic of this movie that she has this sock puppet that's a representation of the dragon that she has in the limbo dimension? I think that's and how I she, interpret it. Yeah, and then she brings him back, but then by the end of the fight, he's gone back to the limbo dimension, and she's just got the sock puppet again. Is that it? Possibly, <laughs> I mean, maybe not... she can transform him. I don't know. It's hard to say, isn't it? As Mike, as Mike rightly points of... out, it's what changed is? from the comics in which he is an alien who just happens to look like a dragon. Great. Oh. <laughs> and and does does he ever does his paths cross with these characters? Because he's Kitty Pride's mate. Yeah. Cause, well, Kitty Pride like sort of hangs out with the New Mutants because they're the same age, but she just managed to sneak into the X Men early on. Right. But her and her and Eliana are roommates and best friends mm. for a big chunk of the X Men history. 
Oh, so is is Lockheed not a magic thing in the comics? It's it, she's he's Kitty he's Pride's. Kitty Pride's pet in the well pet slash partner. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the X Men accidentally got... bring him back from space. I definitely got that confused. Um, <laughs> so that's Ileana anyway. Um, I think my favourite character and the one they did the best with, I think, was Ran. Uh, Rain, sorry. Is that one of those, James, that when when you are young reading for this for the first time, <laughs> you've read it so many... Like, you've like you said Hermione Granger so many times in your head <laughs> yeah, that I... by, the time, by the time you figure it out six books in... There's always going to be something in the back of your mind going. Yes, yeah. when I started reading, when I started reading <laughs> X Men comics, I was not aware of Celtic as a language. So, Scots, <laughs> Scots Celtic. Um, so, Rain, Rain Sinclair. I think the version in the comics, like she has the the sort of backstory with the priest, where the priest is trying to like beat the demon out of her or whatever. But to extend that to her being a lesbian as well, I think that is the kind of change that. You know, had had the character been created during a more liberal time, uh, where there was less stigma around homosexuality, that's some something they would definitely have done. Mm-hmm. Hey, they've just said that they've just said that about hey, this is the first time we brought this up on uh, Cinematic Universe. That's just happened with Tracy Beaker. That they brought <laughs> they brought back Tracy Beaker on CBBC twenty years later, and like the book's been written, I think, in the late eighties, early nineties, originally, mm-hmm. and. Tracy's uh, either adoptive or foster parent is was as written intended to be gay but couldn't be uh, yeah. originally in the books and, okay. you know for, for, for those prevailing attitudes and also wasn't originally in the CBBC series and they kind of made that one of the first things they addressed in this like first episode back of my mum Tracy Beaker was to go yeah, we can make it now and she can be what we always intended her to be. And I thought there was something, I thought it was really nice. So there you go, little, little Tracy B. That Chris, is like. interesting, yeah. Because like Chris <laughs> Claremont was always quite good with sort of queer sexualities. And there's no doubt in my mind that he he knew he was drawing that parallel. If only because of the way that Rain is character designers. Like, you know, you look at the character and go, well, she's clearly coded as lesbian but just not so in the the fact that they made that change for the film makes perfect sense to me um and i think that is a good change that they've done from the comics i've got a question james go on i apologize i need to channel richard herring for this <laughs> is she from scotland all the time because <laughs> Maisie does an accent oh no and it's not and I, I I would argue that it's not very good. She is she is Scottish in the comics. Yes, she is Scotch. To go back to the <laughs> Richard Scotch, Harry thing, yeah, yes. she's Scotch. Um, I think Anya Taylor Joy has more joy with her um, absurd Russian than Maisie Williams does with the Scottish. Personally, yeah, it's it's one of those films where for the first half hour you're completely on the back foot because you have three actors that you know are. English having English accents naturally, but often adopt American accents and things you see them in. <laughs> but they're not doing that here because Charlie Hunnam, Charlie Hunnam, Charlie Heaton's doing that as well. And you're like, what Charlie accents? Heaton's from Leeds. You, what are these accents that, that they're attempting? Because <laughs> I don't he really, was, put, can't really pass it. <laughs> I'm reading Charlie Heaton's uh, Netflix. He was born in Leeds and raised in Bridlington, so he's uh, wow. He's a good Yorkshire boy. And Annie Taylor Joy. Was she born in Argentina, then brought, then came over to, the, to England? 
she she has one of those um like Vigo Mortensen esque um backgrounds that you're like I can't. She was born in Florida. Um, oh. Her mum was born and raised in Zambia and is of English and Spanish descent. Her dad is um, an Argentine of Scottish heritage. Um, and he was an international banker who changed careers to... Uh, this Wikipedia page is wild. Changed careers to become a professional racer in offshore powerboat racing. You don't want to be an onshore powerboat racer, do you? <laughs> Um, so yeah, she, she was, uh, raised in Buenos Aires and then, yeah, came to London. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and I think eventually spends, oh, well, I think she's spent enough time in America by this stage, but she was in some weird, like BBC Panto thing at Christmas, this Zoom Panto. <laughs> um, and every time she popped up, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I forget you, uh, you naturally have a British accent. It's weird. <laughs> It's really interesting watching her do Spanish language press because she, you know, obviously just like, slips into it. Oh yeah, slips wow. into what what is one of her kind of mother tongues, really. So oh, since since great. we mentioned Charlie Heaton, um, mm-hmm. his Cannonball is very interesting because they that feels like one where they've taken the sort of premise of the character and gone, what would he actually be like? Because in in the comics, he's like an upbeat farm boy. And in this, they've gone, well, if you were a teenager and you were, you know, going down the mines with your dad, what would you actually be like and sort of traumatised and withdrawn and, like, your power is to turn yourself into a bomb? Yeah, it's no surprise that he's a bit, like, he's the leader of the New Mutants in the comics. He's, like, the the sort of team SWAT, like, the team suck-up, always doing what the teachers tell him. Oh, they had the nerd all along. Yeah. Mm. But he's more. He's more like. Is he more Ali Sheedy? Yeah, <laughs> that's a bit, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is that is that is that his role? Because he's like the most the most reserved one. Um, but he but, doesn't he doesn't get a love interest. But then he's 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 also got that sort of working class background because some of the characters are mm. stratified by class as well. Uh-huh. I do find it. We, we we laughed. You know, the, the the film really swings for a lot of the sort of teen melodrama stuff but when he says my dad gave me a lump of coal we did pause yes. for a second a lump of coal <laughs> and he is I, I, I mean while we're talking accents that is um it's quite the kind of generic redneck isn't it yeah um it's yeah it's it's out there you're right the lump of coal and there's this one moment where um Bobby, who's so rich, he throws away his shirts after each one he wears, <laughs> and Sam's like, "Oh, can I have me one of those?" Um, <laughs> he's like, "Yeah, sure." Um, when we get out of, oh, he's like, "Oh, I, I think if I had a million dollars, or when I get out of here, I'll give you a million dollars." So, oh, it's a, this guy's poor yeah. and this guy's rich. It yeah. is. It's such broad strokes, but also I'm watching it and going. It's nice that these guys are kind of getting along. Well, again, in the comics, they're best friends. It reminds me of, but... reminds me of turning up at uni for the first time. <laughs> in, the, in the comics, they're best friends, and they, they're sort of a bit closer in temperament than they are in this film. <laughs> like, I that that was a relationship where I was a bit like, you have, you've amplified Charlie Heaton's natural weirdness to the point that makes this unviable. Hmm. I don't like him in Stranger Things, but I... I, I I did find myself, uh, yeah, I, I liked him a lot more here. 
Yeah. I don't really like Stranger Things, though. That's the problem. The, 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 question, the question I always pose to people who like Stranger Things is, do you like Stranger Things or do you just like the theme tune? Because <laughs> I'm always like, ah, oh, I'm so hyped to watch Stranger Things because I love the theme tune and then it, then it is like an hour of nothing happening. For me, Stranger Things is is an hour of um, what if a Peter K stand up bit were a, um, a, t- a teen drama on Netflix. Do you remember this? Hey, do you? Hey, remember uh, Nightmare on Elm Street? Do you remember? <laughs> uh, it were it were right good, wasn't it? And what about Terminator? They ran Terminator. I'm not sure they ran Terminator yet. They did a bit of Terminator, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. In the last series. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just got distracted by my Peter K bit. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and, and Stranger Things obviously also kind of attempted the X Men spin off of its own uh, in season yeah. two and, and, and failed kind of miserably. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a big fan of Stranger Things, but I, uh, yeah, I did, I did quite like Charlie Heaton here. Yeah. Um, and then I think that Sunspot, I think, yeah, Sunspot, Bobby DeCosta, James, yes. he's the, the one you haven't really touched on yet. Yeah. Um, I So that's probably the character in the comics I'm least familiar with. I think they did a reasonable job with him. Like in the, in the comics, he's got a lot of connections to sort of wider X-Men characters and a whole bunch of the, like the idea is he's the... He's the heir to a vast fortune, but he sort of doesn't want to become a businessman or whatever. He wants to wants to be a superhero and hang out with his friends. Again, a lot more upbeat than the the version in the film was, but not unrecognisable to me. I I I I kind of liked him as well. He's in um, Josh Boone. I think it was like having this streak of um, not really being able to get things made. Everything that he was making seemed like it was. Even being delayed or not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, he was signed onto the stand for a long time. That was and wasn't going to happen. I think it was originally going to be a movie. It has ended up being a, a, a mini-series. And I believe that Henry Zagger is is in that in some capacity. Yes, he is. He's Nick Andros. So he's a pretty pretty major character in that. Mm. Um, I love the stand. Not, I've, I've, not, I've not, been, <laughs> not been drawn to, to that series, got to be honest. I'll give you a fun fact about Sunspot. A fun fact about Sunspot is that he uh, joined the Avengers for a while. Hmm. Yeah. Sunspot and Cannonball were both in the Avengers for a bit. Is there many many X-Men characters that have been... I I guess Um, Wolverine's a big one, right? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, mutants sort of kept out of the way of the Avengers because they had the X-Men. Yeah. Um, It wasn't until... I'm trying to think if there were any characters before I can't think of any mutants who are in the Avengers before Wolverine joined in the Bendis era when Bendis just threw together all of Marvel's top heroes when it was like the Avengers suddenly went from being the Avengers and went to being Spider-Man and Iron Man and Wolverine and Thor and Captain America Mm. Um, because prior to that they'd been a bit more provincial it was like we got Vision and we got the Scarlet Witch and we got oh Quicksilver of yeah. course yeah Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch yeah. are the two uh, two mutant Avengers can't believe I missed those out. Um, <laughs> we're gonna get letters <laughs> I, was, I was I was taking them as a given because they were the only ones that I knew <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um, 
No, later there was a series quite recently called Uncanny Avengers where um, the whole premise was half the team are mutants because the Avengers had been ignoring mutants for too long. Interesting. Right, guys, I, uh, I think we, we should try and wrap up this conversation soon, but I just want to have a, a very quick chat before, before, we, before we do wrap this up. Uh, to kind of mm-hmm. spin us off with, this was the end of the Fox X-Men universe. I, th- <laughs> I think Dark Phoenix felt like it was the end, but this was almost like, for me, the epilogue of, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was uh, just just a nice reminder that it wasn't always so grim over there. Um, <laughs> and... I, I certainly don't want us to spoil anything that is happening in Marvel right now for people that are listening to this podcast that might not be up to speed on on uh, events unfolding on Disney Plus. Um, but I'd just be really, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on what you would like to see happen with the mutants now they're over on Fox. We had all of the philosophical debates on the podcast a couple of years ago about whether this was a good thing for cinema, whether <laughs> whether it was worth one of the, you know, the biggest studios being folded into one of the others just so we could get our mutants in the MCU. Um, but as, you know, now it's happened, can we at least get to enjoy the mutants in the MCU, you know? Um, so I, I'd, I'd be really keen to hear from you like kind of broad strokes, what you would like to see from the mutants in the MCU. Is there, like I was saying about um, Anya Taylor-Joy and Ilyana, is there anyone that you're like, I would love them to find a way to either introduce this character into the MCU with the same actor or through a multiverse? Or are you keen, Like, is there anyone that you're like, look, when they do do mutants again, you have to bring these characters back and I'd like to see, I'd like to see them take... <laughs> this different approach for it because you know the the possibilities are endless and we're we're seeing them hinted at already um so yeah is there and and you know we've we've already heard deadpool 3 is going to happen uh it's going to be in the mcu in some capacity so uh yeah we i think i think we should expect both characters we've seen before like ryan Reynolds' deadpool being made by disney um in whether it's in out in that Marvel universe or part of the multiverse, and then also new characters, characters we've seen before in different forms. What what do you what are you hoping for? <laughs> I'm gonna kick this over to my what, what? Okay, um, it's a big question. It's, it's vast, isn't it? <laughs> so, I suppose what I'll say is, even though this is not a hot take, but half the Fox X Men films weren't great. They're, they're, they were often, mm-hmm. they're more often not so great than they were great. But what I did like about the X-Men movies compared to the MCU is that there was this real sense of um, digging into the metaphor and taking it seriously under a, a criticism that I often, well, it's not a criticism, a niggle I sometimes have about the MCU is that the metaphors are often buried underneath the overarching world building of the universe. So I'd, yeah. be, I'd be worried about bringing the X-Men into that. And I hope that if they do, that they would would find a way to keep the metaphors and the sort of human drama at the heart of it. Something like WandaVision gives me some hope about that. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. I do like about New Mutants is that there's no irony. There's no sort of big character. You know, there's, there's no sort of 
big personalities who are almost taking the piss out of the concept and the setup in the way that a Deadpool, you know, Deadpool, you can see him fitting. Oh, or a Wolverine. Sorry? Or yeah, Wolverine. exactly. Wolf, that's what Wolverine served in those early films, but he was just more of, more of okay. a um, the Han Solo character back then. Mm. But whereas I can see Deadpool moving over quite well into the Marvel Cinematic Universe as he is, I'd, I'd be interested. I'm, I'm intrigued to see how they would approach everyone else in terms of characters that i'd want to then bring over i don't really ascribe to this thing i don't think hugh jackman is irreplaceable i'm i'm looking forward to an interesting no. different take on the character i do think that um patrick stewart and Ian mckellen were perfectly matched but you know they are very old men you know we can we can get younger actors in and i'd like to see how they cast that similarly with if they tried a younger take on charles and eric michael fassbender and james mcavoy were fantastic uh, uh, in in some films and then in other films they were just waving <laughs> their hands at green screen um although i do i do like the one reference to james mcavoy they make in this where they just do the do the eyebrow pose <laughs> james mcavoy's great great contribution to yeah. <laughs> to yeah. comic book movies so it's it's a it's a <laughs> That's a massive question, Joe. And one of the reasons why I listen to this podcast is that I think that you guys are much better equipped at that sort of big scale dreaming about comic books on screen than I am. Um, but it would be a shame. That's what that's one thing. That what was good about having Sony having Spider Man, Fox having X Men, and you know the, the other Marvel movies being you know Paramount in them with with Disney. Um, was that you could have a little bit of a different tone between them all. Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd hate there to be an X-Men movie that was like the Tom Holland Spider-Man. I, I don't want that to so just turn up and oh. it's just that. Oh, God. Uh, don't wound me like that. I remember when uh, pre-firing and rehiring, uh, there was talk that James Gunn was going to be like overseeing the space uh, realm of Marvel, of the mm. MCU. But I, I kind of like. On the one hand, and I think you, I think you saw you saw hints of that in Ragnarok in the direction that they took things, but they obviously got a different, a different voice in there. Um, I, I kind of don't, don't hate the approach of going, uh, Feige kind of going like I, I would like to have someone else like looking after the direction of an area of this vast empire as it gets vaster and vaster mm-hmm. because as soon as you open as soon as you introduce the x-men it's such a it's such a giant kind of worms that you kind of think like yeah wouldn't it wouldn't it be great if you did have someone different creating something that within the mcu has a slightly different vibe and has something that that you know can feel part of the mcu but can also be its own thing at the same time um one of my big hopes is that they that they realise the potential. I'm sure James is going to say this, but like, you know, I had no idea before I did this podcast that um, the X Men did shit in space and had all of these like uh, these wild storylines. That I'm like, no, it's you, you you get Professor X and you get Magneto, <laughs> and they have and they're on the same side, but they like they keep playing chess. Yeah, but they're kind of sometimes they're playing chess with a chessboard, and sometimes they're playing it with people. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you know, I I would personally, I'd save Magneto. I'd probably save Magneto for a while because he was he he's he's been so overused as a villain in, in the X Men side of things. Um, I would I, I would cherry pick 
actors, especially now you have the multiverse, that you think it would be fun to bring them back um, as that character, either as a multiverse version or as a or as like the a, a new twist on that character within the MCU. Um, and I'd like to I'd like to see them use use the metaphor more broadly as well because I think there was you know. I, I think what that that first that first X Men movie did was kind of use it as a a metaphor for coming out, mm-hmm. but also set up the whole kind of like um, civil rights uh, Malcolm X mm-hmm. Martin Luther King thing, and I think that's kind of what we did for twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd, I'd I'd love to see them broaden out the scope of that and um, and and really in the in this world of the MCU that already has so many superheroes um, really set up the mutants as something distinct and different within that world um, and allowed them to explore those things because when they have explored them, like in stuff with Civil War and the Sokovia Accords, it, uh, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't feel like the most interesting exploration <laughs> to me. Um, well, see, this is, you've sort of hit on something that I think as well, which is that, Part of the part of the premise of uh, the X Men is that like suddenly a bunch of ordinary people are getting superpowers and they're not necessarily that interesting or useful mm. and occasionally they're actively harmful. Um, and it's really hard to do the X Men as a premise without radically altering the entire mm-hmm. universe you're in. So I think if they're going to do it, they should. Keep as keep as few characters in the mix as possible, and make it a big deal when mutants turn up. And try not to make them like don't just check in like fifty overpowered name X Men across the course of a couple of films. Like lean hard into the into the gift and curse angle rather than the you know we're here we're X Men and we can blow up a planet if we look at it wrong. Also, like, can we not be treated any differently? Because the the metaphor really breaks down when the characters are actually very dangerous. And the 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 other thing that's really fun about the X Men for me, certainly in terms of on screen superheroes, is I don't see a way that you can do them where they're not just flat out superpowers. You know, there 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 aren't any you know even even with even with like a character like spider-man in the mcu he doesn't really feel like he's like he's kind of more agile and nimble but like ultimately it's like he's got a high-tech suit and 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 he doesn't have organic web shooters you know Mm -hmm. so and 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 Uh so many of those characters are grounded in the military industrial complex Mm -hmm. and and they have been for a, a a decade um and when they and when they do have genuine superpowers like a black panther or a or a spider-man it, it tends to be like generically a bit stronger yeah. like hawkeye is just a guy who shoots arrows really well and black widow can fight really well 
and none of the Guardians of the Galaxy for all of their space weirdness and character design and and like mm. alien race really have anything funky in and of themselves. And it's it's why I've been having a bit of fun. I, I you know I, I loved the Doctor Strange movie and I'm really enjoying One Division because it feels like something different and without spoiling anything directly i'm enjoying what they're leaning into in one division in terms of the actual powers themselves and it being something different and when it comes to mutants you know you've got this vast array of stuff and it's literally a mutation anything to 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 have any of them with those powers they all have a thing it's not just i am strong or i have a good yeah that's a good point they have a thing yeah, it's not like this person is very agile or this person is very strong. Or in the case of like Doctor Strange and, and Scarlet Witch, like these characters can fire energy blasts and move things, which is what their powers boil down to. It's like Cyclops has this one thing, which is that he fires blasts out of his eyes and that's yeah. what he will do. Um, so yeah, that is that is an interesting way they could approach it, which is to sort of lean into the, the weirdness and the uncanny angle. Mm-hmm. Um that is kind of what made them popular in the 60s is that they were just weird like before they sort of landed on the idea of the civil rights metaphor and the puberty metaphor and stuff it was just like here are some weird characters or the by the way they were born that way yeah you made you like it wasn't baked into the premise originally you made me read the original x-men like the the first five issues of yeah. that original team pre pre even giant size x-men and all of the claremont stuff mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah, and it lacks all that stuff. And like the the goal of the X Men was to be an outreach program for these weird people, mm. and to be like, look, we're we're going to help you. And that was their pitch: was like, we're don't be scared of us. So maybe that's the angle to take with it. And it's it's also going to be interesting, right? That unless mutants have been completely in hiding in the MCU, you might mm. you might have to depict their creation or the moment that 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 brings them. I- what I think is we'll get a we'll get a first in, unless they go the route of we've got a multiverse so let's segregate mutants entirely in their own universe, which is a thing they could do. Yeah. Um, I think the route they will go is there is a very public like display display of mutant powers, and suddenly we can no longer hide and the X Men come up and be like we well this is what we've been waiting for is the big incident where we need to be like. Just because this one, just because Magneto turned up and threatened a nuclear base, don't worry, we're going to stop him as well. Like the rest of us are on your side. I think that's how they're going to do it. I would also say that the thing that, I'd like, as as much as I think it would be a good idea to hold Magneto back for a little bit, the same way that the Spider-Man movies aren't doing Green Goblin, I think maybe mm-hmm. that, you know some of the color schemes that they released on that on those. Fake, fake titles <laughs> this week made me think mm. uh, there's there's a certain green and purple themed character that might be coming. Um, but you know they've done they've done two movies. Tom Holland's been around in four or five of them, and we haven't met that character yet. I would hold Magneto mm-hmm. back, but just because he's been so well done. But also, you know, he's a character that you can drop after X amount of time, and um, and his introduction would be epic. On the flip side, just fucking drop Wolverine in straight away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he should yeah. he should be the character that announces that the mutants are here. And yeah, like um, Seb was always massively keen on Taron Taron Egerton. I think Edgerton mm-hmm. Egerton. I can never figure out how to pronounce his name. 
I don't I, I don't know. I can I can kinda see that. Um Tom Hardy was a name that was tossed around for a while. Um I just I hope it's someone short with a chip on their shoulder. <laughs> yeah, right. Bring Alden Elden right back after his <laughs> Star Wars exile. You know, Hollywood chewed him up and spat him out, and I'd like to see that actually on the screen. What what that it were so simple. Um yeah, so I would I would throw uh, I would throw um Wolverine in there straight away. And also, when I was talking about having a, a voice that can maybe own that side of the uh, own that side of the universe, I don't want this to be a Fantastic Four thing where it's like the X Men are happening and we have given it to um, Psycho Waititi or we've given it to uh, oh I don't even know who's directing some of the upcoming ones, uh, but you know, like not <laughs> just like we're just not to recycle or like the Russos are coming back and now they're doing X Men. Because that feels like something the MCU would do. <laughs> the X Men are going to fight in a car park. Yeah, there's going to be there's going to be concrete everywhere, and um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think the Russos have some merits, but you know, not like yeah, do do something new, do something different and exciting, and make it feel like its own thing. But I'm 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 looking forward to when they get round to it because the hints that we've already had that you do like. I don't know, I get that little tingle and think, oh, like, they're a decade in and it suddenly feels like the, um, all of the, all of the, those little plastic chess pieces, those little glass chess pieces, I guess, are, um, <laughs> are starting to, you know, the, the, the board is, is opening up. It's potentially really exciting. I think James is right that the, the Fox always had an entire comic book universe that they never really figured out how to fully exploit. Mm-hmm. And that works in both directions. It could be this huge thing, or it could just be drilling down to the smallest story of one person going through the change and mm. discovering their powers. And I really hope that they find the way to balance those two things rather than go epic straight away. And whether it is, you know, it's he, he you know, if it's like get this, get an indie filmmaker to be able to make to their stamp on the, the sell, selling the character drama at all that could be really good i actually think and this is completely one eight you know completely 180 to what i just said um <laughs> x-men so i'm really enjoying um lower decks the star trek animated series and now it's finally yeah. come out in the uk i think there could be a really funny x-men version of that the the, the mutants <laughs> that get the bad powers and have to stick, oh, stick I, around at the. At the... I read, yeah. I read a fun mini series which was like the worst X Man ever. Worst yeah. X Man ever. And his yeah. his superpower was that he uh, could explode, but it would <laughs> it would only happen once, and then he would die. So he like turns up at the X Mansion and is like, I can't do anything. Um, I, like I can't contribute anything. Someone has just identified that this is my power. My family don't want anything to do with me anymore because I'm a mutant. But I, so I've got all of the downside and none of the upside of being able to go out and fight with the X Men. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like it, it, it starts off with that kind of absurd setting of premise and and gets a little bit more, um, a little bit more dark and um, serious as it progresses. But it's yeah, it's a fun idea. But yeah, you're right. The, the shit X Men. No, but you could just as much do that as as, as you could do with the, the the highest concept, most hard sci-fi, sort of like House of X, Powers of X, 
kind of mm. stuff, which it's, it'd be hard to imagine them trying to pull something like that off within the MCU. That's something that almost needs the X-Men to be a separate thing. Yeah. I would um, I would also, I think I've said this on our um, Patreon episodes, but I would make Miss Marvel a mutant mm-hmm. in the MCU, which she's getting a TV show later this year. Um, the timing's right. You're not getting, there's, no, there's no benefit to her being an inhuman. So she's either just going to be someone who's got powers for some reason. Or she could be a mutant. I'd, I'd make her a mutant. That would be that would be great, and that would be cool. And then also, you would that that gives you a that gives it would be gives you a route into putting Captain Marvel in the X Men side of the universe, which I think would also it would be, be interesting to meet mutants prior to meeting the X Men and have mm, yeah you know have have them turning up and starting to seed that idea first. But then I feel like if they were going to do that, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are right there, mm. so. They could have said, instead of, you know, instead of saying she got her powers from whatever, they could have said, well, she was a mutant and that's why the Infinity Stone worked on it. Well, so. who knows that this could all be out of date within a week of the episode being released. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> hey, it's exciting. I, I think it is exciting, though. And um, yeah, I think it was it was interesting revisiting this movie, pouring one out for the X-Men franchise, which... You know, looking back, uh, I've actually got... They released uh, 13 movies. Um, and, you know, when the first X-Men came out, it was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's, what, it's, one of the, yeah. it's one of the key reasons why all of this is still going. Um, I think between X2, Logan, and X-Men First Class, you've got three really great examples of comic book movies and i know i like first class more than a lot of people i think uh deadpool the first x-men are both very good and then unfortunately for me everything else is a bit shit (laughs) (laughs) but there's you know um there's been a lot of stuff to like in there and you know i i I do wonder whether it's no worse than your average franchise right (laughs) no and Mm -hmm. yeah it got for it certainly not not for your average franchise that manages to churn out 13 movies um yeah yeah, it's fine. And there, there are there are characters in there in almost all of those movies. I bet you could go for each one and go. I bet if you dropped that character into an MCU property at some point in the future, you'd be like, oh, holy shit. Like if Famke Janssen turned up in something, you'd be like, oh, right. Okay. Hello. What's going on here? <laughs> um, yeah. And I think you could kind of, I think you could probably do that with most of the movies. Um Bring back Alan Cumming. What about that? That would work. <laughs> mm, that's true. <laughs> Bring back the guy who played Angel on X Men Three. The the kid from EastEnders. No, no, yeah. no, no. You're thinking of no. It's Ben Foster in X Men Three, isn't it? Ben Foster. That was it. That's who I meant. I knew it was called Ben something. Yeah, Ben Foster could come back, and then and then I think it's Ben from EastEnders. I don't yeah. know if he's a Ben. I really think when they finally come around to doing the Easy Riders raging bulls of the sort of first 20 years of superhero movies post that year, you know, that year or two of Spider-Man, X-Men, etc., that th- that whole Fox franchise will be a really fascinating read just because they got mm. so much, it was so chaotic all the way through. Um Particular uh-huh. films within that, like Last Stand, which we and First Class, would be really fascinating to read out, read about it properly. Um, just knowing how quickly they had to turn around First Class, and it's amazing they even got a film out of it by the end. But then also, 
<laughs> the, these big big personalities behind it, like Kimberg, as we mentioned, who how the hell did he get handed a franchise? Hmm. Well, we know. Well, well and, we know. <laughs> and and then the, and, and, you know it, it it kind of it ends up with between Lauren Shula Donna and uh, Singer as well. We mm-hmm. talked about a lot on the obviously on the um, Superman Returns episode, which you know that that film kind of comes about as a as a result of the X-Men franchise and then fundamentally alters the X-Men franchise by who leaves and who comes in. Um, Matthew Vaughn flirts with the franchise mm-hmm. on a few occasions, does does eventually come in, is going to continue until, oh no, Brian Singer's back. And then, yeah, and then you do transition into this final five years post-Brian Singer and I think a lot of Days of Future Past behind the scenes drama. Um where Kinberg kind of takes over at the same time as he seems to be the primary driver over this catastrophic Fantastic Four movie, mm-hmm. which I'm sure would have ended up like that. To me, feels like you could l- you could l- lump it in with the X Men movies more than the the first batch of Fantastic Four movies mm-hmm. do. Um, yeah, and and yeah, Kinberg becoming this kind of voice over the final five years um, to the point that he directs one of them and and seems. And seems like he kind of curses everything he touches. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the same time, you've got you've got Deadpool, which feels like quietly revolutionary in its own way, um, and and Logan, which um, which kind of like got I, I, maybe as much, if not more, critical respect than any superhero mm-hmm. movie of, of the of of the MCU era. I I also find it really fascinating looking at this now. We, we mentioned at the beginning how this film already in a certain way needs to be it needs to be cancelled because of marilyn manson providing voice <laughs> also it's outright love for buffy um it's also seemed quite out of step from when it was you know even you know now compared to a few weeks mm. ago if we'd watched it that, that that whole main section of the x-men franchise so to ignore the sort of the offshoots like deadpool and wolverine and logan the two major influences over that you, you could say Joss Whedon with Buffy. Of course, Joss Whedon has input in the scripts of X-Men. Mm-hmm. He, he, well documented. Only one line makes it in or whatever it is. But like <laughs> that, that idea of the metaphor being for growing up or coming out of some sort of personal um, experience is very much informed by Buffy. And we see that literally in here. And then Brian Singer. So you go back to 2000, 2000 2001, you have these two major influential figures who were sort of in in their own way icons and now you know very much persona persona grata so it's absolutely time to refresh this and move away from those influences yeah can't think of a franchise that's ended where it's like okay we really need to choose some new figureheads (laughs) yeah this 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 is a good time to move on and uh and yeah (laughs) call it a day um yeah we'll be we'll be interesting to see what happens with mutants in the mcu um that was supposed to be a quick diversion but i should have known that it wouldn't be um but super interesting um any any final thoughts on new mutants or are we good can can i can i quickly have a shout out to the cinematographer peter deming who doesn't necessarily do very distinguished work here but he's just got a really fascinating career whenever i see his name i i it always surprises me. So he is David Lynch's cinematographer. Oh wow! So okay. shot one of his most recent big pieces of work was shooting Twin Peaks: The Return. But he has the um, 
he has like one of the best 1997s on record because he he shot both Lost Highway, the David Lynch movie, and Austin Powers. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's like working with the titans of Jay Jay Roach and uh, and David Lynch in the same year. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I just want to say because I keep I've been meaning to make this comparison the whole time and forgot. Uh, I think this movie is a lot closer to the Generation X TV show than we give it credit for. <laughs> I was worried you were about to make the same comparison that I was, and you didn't, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know what you mean. This is much better than the Generation X <laughs> TV yeah, show. but it feels very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, listeners, we've got an episode on that in Probably, if you want to dig back into the archive and pick <laughs> that one out. Um, I would say it was one of the it was one of the references that Josh Boone dropped. I mean, he also dropped stuff like The Shining and The Exorcist, and I'm I'm not and Rosemary's Baby, and I'm not sure you re- <laughs> didn't quite make it. Not sure you really see those too much in here. But he also dropped a Nightmare on Elm Street Three Dream Warriors, which is for my money <laughs> the best Elm Street movie. Um, or it's, it's like one of it's certainly in the top tier with the first one and probably um, New Nightmare. Um, and it, it's just, it's great. It's loads of fun. It's a load of team teens in an institution, um, being terrorized by Freddy Krueger. And it's, it's, um, it's so much fun. And it, yeah, I was like, oh yeah, no, actually I, I can, I can definitely see that in this. Um, so if you want to, if you want a film recommendation coming out of this, if you did enjoy New Mutants, I would recommend, um, Dream Warriors, which is yeah, an absolute hoot of a horror movie. Um, that's it for this week's podcast, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us to 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 come and lay the X Men to rest for now. It's a, yeah. Fox, the Fox X Men. Absolute pleasure. Um, in, it would we'll be we'll come back. Oh, sorry, there. God, I'm falling asleep. <laughs> Absolute pleasure, Joe. It's really interesting when the podcast you're listening to actually talks back. <laughs> Very rare, rare, rare experience. Um, we we should uh, we should do some plugs. You've mentioned your podcast Ghibliotech already, yeah, uh, which people should hunt out. Um, Inside Cinema, Inside Games, yeah, okay, yeah. So tell the listeners about those. Well, yeah, so Ghibli Attack, the podcast about Studio Ghibli and other animation uh, is out there wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Inside Cinema, if you're in the UK, you can find that on iPlayer, uh, but we also sometimes get that stuff out on BBC Arts social accounts too. And the Inside Games documentary, Special Characters, that came out the week we've just been recording, has just come out the week we're recording. Um, That's This podcast will be out in the next few days, so yeah, listeners will. So that'll be out on iPlayer too. Uh, that's like a 30-minute jaunt through the history and evolution of video game characters and what they mean to the art form and the business of video games. It's quite a fun one. And that's very, very exciting. Isn't it? Which you directed. directed which you directed. <laughs> I'm the next Simon Kimberg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't say that. I'm the next Josh Boone. I'll, I'll, I'll set my sights <laughs> at the right level. Yeah. <laughs> uh. As long as you're not the next John Watson, people know that you exist. <laughs> <laughs> there was no one in that office. Uh, <laughs> so, Mike, thank you for joining us. Um, James, we will be back next week. We, I think we should... Oh, sorry, the week after next. But I think we should probably 
we can just tell listeners what we're covering um mm. because this is this is the plan on the on the podcast moving forward um you uh, will probably have noticed that on a weekly basis we have been posting one division uh recaps james and i tend to sit down for what planned to be about 15 to 20 minutes and as <laughs> uh, uh, once we got a few episodes into one division and realized oh shit this is a big deal um we we have quickly ballooned up to about an hour per episode where we um make th- theories and predictions that are proved wrong within a week and we <laughs> dive deep into the nerdery and and try and also to appraise the show on its merits from a week to week basis as well um those have been really fun to do so those are on the Patreon if you want to if you want to subscribe and find those there and listen along as you're watching the show. Uh, but the next episode on the main feed will be a full-blown WandaVision. Uh, we've got a great guest lined up to come and talk about that. And that will be more of a retrospective on the show. We'll, you know, rather rather than all of that speculating stuff from week to week that doesn't make sense, you know, we'll try and view we'll try and view it. We'll cover it as a piece. We'll cover it as a piece, yes. Um uh, discuss it retrospectively now that we know kind of what everything was setting up, where it was leading to, what the story was in its totality, um, you know, and talk about it as a single piece of uh, a single piece of uh, television. Um, I mean, we as of recording, we still got an episode left to watch of One Division, but um, I said this on the Patreon. If if it sticks the landing, it's going to be up there amongst my favourite pieces of um, of Marvel storytelling. And mm-hmm. um, my wife said to me as we were watching the uh, as we were watching the latest episode today, said, "I think this is like my favourite thing that Marvel that of Marvel that you've made me watch." <laughs> <laughs> so high praise from her indeed. So I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes. And like I said, uh, we've got. Um, a really great guest lined up so um i think that should be a cracker um and that will be our next episode on the main feed so you can look forward to that um and then we're gonna do right. and then we're gonna do the snyder cut <laughs> <laughs> which i'm potentially even more excited for god after a year of no content 2021 keeps on giving i'm yeah. <laughs> brilliant okay um Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, Listeners, if you enjoyed the episode, you can find more on your podcast app of choice. Uh, You can find more on cinematicuniverse.com. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at cine underscore verse. Send us an email to podcast at cinematicuniverse.com. I would particularly encourage you to do that if you've got any One Division thoughts or questions that you want to ask us, because that main feed episode is going to be a full-on retrospective, so please do pepper us with... uh, with anything you want to say or quizzes on after that, after the show is finished. Um, and of course, yeah, if you do want to support the show, we've got actual content on Patreon now, um, on the, on the (laughs) reg. So head, head over there and, uh, and listen to our weekly yarn wall episodes on one division. Uh, thanks for listening and we will see you, uh, in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 